On this edition of Retronauts, Circle 018 on Information Card. Welcome, everybody. This is Retronauts, your favorite podcast about old things, specifically video games. My name is Ray Barnholt, and with me in the studio today are Bob Mackey. Hello, everybody. Our special guest, Matt Leone. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you. And, of course, on the line, Jeremy Parrish. This is Jeremy Parrish. I'm saying you're on the line. You're on the hook. I am on the line. This is it for you. (laughs) Wait, so I'm being shipped off to a Captain D's or something to be fried? (laughs) Oh, yes. Is this a Sega bass fishing episode? Uh, no, Matt, although I wish it was, if I had my druthers, actually. (laughs) This week, uh, we're talking about all sorts of old video game media, magazines and websites and all that good stuff. So not a particular game or game series or a genre or developer, just a full-on nostalgia blast from all of us here. And, uh, Matt, I got in a pinch. We were going to have another guest, but I got Matt because, you know, he is one of the uh, guys who knows a lot about this sort of thing, as we all do, really. I mean, we all read magazines and websites and things. Matt, in particular, uh, besides uh, having his own little publication, which we may talk about, is also just uh, a guy who tracks a lot of people and editors from the past and present. Is that right, Matt? Thank you for admitting I was your second choice. Um, <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah, you, you know a lot of these people because we worked with a lot of these people. But even before that, I was kind of hooked. I couldn't go to a bookstore without spending time in the magazine. Right yeah. Now. So it's good to have you. And actually, you're only the second choice because this is actually a backer-requested episode from one Daniel Turner. He had a, he had a specific guest in mind. It uh, didn't work out. Right. So uh, apologies to him. But nonetheless... He has he brought this up to us as a Kickstarter backer, and I thought, well, you know, that's great, and it's a lot to talk about. So much, in fact, that you know we don't really have a uh, set structure. I think I think you know as as we talk about these things, the conversation will flow because mm-hmm. there's lots to talk about. And uh, you know, we have mentioned this sort of thing on Retronauts before. I think uh, you know we can talk about GamePro, and we did have a GamePro episode way back when. We did, yeah, right, Bob. You know, we brought some people on there to talk about the last days of GamePro and where it came from. So you know, we may mention that a bit as well. I also apologize upfront to all the Atari nerds who checked out many more magazines of the early '80s than we did, because we will probably be talking more about mid '80s, the late '80s, and '90s stuff for sure. And you know, it's true that you know we wouldn't be talking about. All these magazines that we will talk about without the early pioneers in this country anyway, such as Electronic Games or or Video Games Magazine, which was from the early 80s and was like this really crazy looking artistic magazine, really great layouts and stuff for the time. It was really sort of uh, bold for what it did. Uh, but, you know, we didn't have a lot of firsthand experience with that. I mean, I've, I've gone back and looked at it since. But we're just of that generation that was more conscious of the 80s and 90s. And so I, I will say that um, being the old person here, I do have a little right. more experience with some of the uh, the older magazines. It's not that sure. I subscribed to any of them. And I didn't own video game systems back in the early 80s because, you know, money. But um, <laughs> But I did spend a lot of time with those magazines mainly because... Uh, so many of them had the programs in the back, you know, in the days ah, yes. before uh, video game programs were massive and complicated. You could pick up a magazine from the library and take it home and type in a program in the back and play your own video games. So, again, I don't, you know, have, like, strong specific memories of any particular magazine. I kind of 
borrowed them indiscriminately, but you know, I I would read them and kind of ooh and ah over all the video games that I wasn't able to play at the time. Yeah, I also remember your woeful tales about the Coleco Adam, Jeremy. <laughs> uh, uh, I, have I told the story before? Just no. You've mentioned the Adam before and how it was, you know, not not the greatest, not the greatest part of your early gaming life, perhaps. It tried. It tried hard. So, I mean, that's just the sort of thing we'll be talking about as well. And, you know, a lot of that was computer-focused. And again, you know, I don't think uh, some of us, me in particular, were all that uh, into PC game magazines for a little bit. I've sampled some. Our list may not acknowledge all of those great PC gaming magazines from the time either. It is interesting, I think, because, like, back then, it was, like, heresy to have a PC game in a console magazine or or vice versa. Whereas now, it's like, you can't imagine that. Being, unless it's like a single console right. publication or single public, like a you know PC, Xbox, whatever. Yeah. Um, but back then it was like I remember there was a huge debate whenever like they would put like a PC column in EGM or something. Like that. Oh, that's Platform right. Yes. Exclusivity died with the dinosaurs, man. Media yeah. wiped them all out. There's also a much bigger difference between a PC game and a console game in those days. I think. Mm. Yeah, and I remember things like you know every PC game would be like extra harsh on. Ports from console games, yeah, for a while. <laughs> it's like for a while. No, that lasted. I mean, <laughs> decades. I mean, I remember um, when Final Fantasy VII was ported to uh, to PC. Like the the PC magazines just tore it apart. They were like, "This is an RPG. This right. is an adventure game pretending to be an RPG. How dare yeah. they? This is garbage." Without really stopping to understand, you know, what the game was trying to be. Right. I remember some other magazine. I think maybe. Uh, CGW or something. Uh, they reviewed Silent Hill three and gave it like a two, kind of <laughs> just totally. I know that it. review. Yeah, yeah. So that sort of thing happens, <laughs> but that's fair. I, I reviewed um, what was that Mega, uh, Mega Man Battle Chip Challenge, which was totally yeah. based on some old PC game that I wasn't familiar with, and I I misunderstood the game at the time that I reviewed it and gave it a harsher review than it probably deserved, but. We all work from our own context and our own yes. knowledge base. You, you killed Battleship Challenge, Jeremy. It's all my fault. <laughs> Mega Man died because of me. If yeah, I had given right. it a better review, that game would have sold better. Franchise would still be viable. Inafune would still be with Capcom. I can't. I can't believe the butterfly well, effect of that review. My God. I'm glad you've. I'm glad you finally come to admit this this week on Retronauts, and uh, our audience will enjoy that. So, as you know, for generations. Our only links to the world of video games were these monthly or bi-monthly updates in magazines. And as I said, we'll talk about the internet a little bit later, but I don't want to ruminate or talk so much about the whole print is dead thing. But, you know, rather let's just talk about a good old day of the good old days when, you know, the best way for gamer kids like us to get info was on, you know, colorful paper every month or so. Let's just uh, jump right into it. Like, uh, one of the first things Daniel brought up uh, for us to talk about was, you know, what was your first gaming magazine? Hmm. His were a set of EGMs he got with his dad from a garage sale back when he was eight or nine. You know, just looking at all these uh, old games like Iron Sword, Castlevania, Super C, Ninja Gaiden, all these great NES games. And, and then his older brother had Nintendo Powers uh, from the first issue on that he read quite a bit as well. And uh, I think uh, for me, I'll start and I'll say that, you know, Nintendo Power was the first one. And, you know, Nintendo Power was so huge that we could do a whole episode on it, hint, hint. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, th- that was definitely a seminal one for people of, of our age, for sure, when the NES was finally growing into such a huge thing after the uh, the whole game crash. And Nintendo Mania was sweeping the country. It was definitely Nintendo Power for yeah. me because it was not only, I mean, 
I found out about it because other people had this magazine, not just from mm-hmm. you know going to the store. I mean, usually in any given class, there are at least four or five kids that would have the new issue on them, or I would have a friend that would subscribe to it. So I very rarely had to buy my own, but I would always I would always like get uh, back issues later, you know, just kind kind of catch up on what I missed when I was younger. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I know. I think I subscribed by the by the early '90s, but in those early days, it was mainly just like borrowing friends and you know mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, Matt, I can't actually remember what the first was. Like, I, I wasn't super loyal to anyone. I guess as time went on, like I had certain loyalties, but like mm-hmm. it wasn't like I just subscribed to one and didn't pay attention to the others for a few years. Um, so I can't really recall. I see. I, I will. I will say I have one tiny, tiny story, and it's sort of like what people when they first saw electricity at the World's Fair. This is the reaction <laughs> I got. Was when I had an, a copy of EGM in like 1990, and they had Mario World coverage. Right. Mario Four, they called it. Ah, yes. And kids on the bus could not believe what they were seeing. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, it was incredible. Like, yeah. I still remember how how like insane everyone was going about these tiny blurry screenshots. Yeah, I actually want to talk about something about that. But uh, Jeremy, do you, I mean, you, you already said you know what sort of magazine you were starting with, but I mean, did anything else sort of jump out at you uh, after that or at yeah, all? Yeah, I mean, or? well. Um, Nintendo Power's launch, actually the Nintendo Fun Club newsletter's launch, That's right. coincided with uh, my sort of acquiring an NES and actually becoming someone who played video games, was able to play video games on a regular basis. But even though that was the one I subscribed to, the one I always read at the newsstand was EGM, which I always thought, it just mm-hmm. it, it had the greatest density and always seemed to have the most interesting scoops in advance of of Nintendo Power they you know were really big into Japanese coverage even you know in the first year so when i wanted to read about Castlevania 3 or something they would always have like huge blowouts about that and right. as many issues as i bought of that i really should have just subscribed because it would have been cheaper but <laughs> i would pick yeah. up an, an issue like every 2 or 3 months and end up spending more than the cost of a subscription would have been but uh even when i didn't buy them i would still scan every issue at the newsstand so you know when i actually started working at one up with egm uh, and they had their library. I was just like, oh, yeah, I know all these issues. Yeah, I was the same way. I was always I, – I, I did subscribe to Nintendo Power as soon as possible, but everything else I was just sort of late to subscribing to. And it's just like I, I, would, I, would, I would do the same thing, just keep buying them at the grocery store. and just like, okay, well, I think it's time. I think I like this enough now that I can go ahead and get it regularly. But, uh, yeah, that Nintendo Fun Club newsletter, like I, I was totally late to that. I think, you know, I, I was into a few issues – I was a few issues into Nintendo Power – so I mean, had, had you guys ever seen one in the wild, Bob? I mean, I haven't. No. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's like what the, the fun club newsletter. It. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually, I... I actually got the last three issues of it in the mail. Oh um, wow! So and then I had a friend who had like two issues before that. So I don't think I ever saw the first or second issues in the wild. The ones that were just you know like duotone four pages or whatever. But um, right, all the ones that came after that, the full color issues, I've had actually read through and flipped through and obsessed over like, Oh my God, Zelda two. I can't wait to play this. Then two years later, Oh, <laughs> yeah. I finally get to play this. Yeah. I've done that like, uh, recently because you know, now that everything, they have scans of everything and you, and I downloaded those and looked at the fun club newsletter finally and saw things like super early previews of dragon warrior when they were mm. still using like dragon quest, uh, nomenclature and just, yeah, that was craziness. Yeah. Howard Phillips anonymous so- two page blowout on the Goonies two is pretty much what made me fall in love with that game. I was like, ah, this uh, is so awesome. And even when I got lost in the game and couldn't figure out how to advance, I would flip back to that to that uh, blowout and I would see screenshots of this place with like dragons and lava and stuff. And I was like, there's more to this game that I have to see someday. Like it, yes. it, it fueled me. It drove the obsession. 
that's an interesting thing to talk about as well is that, you know, a lot of, not a lot of, but there was a, a few different magazines that just sort of became, you know, the official, uh, sort of, uh, the, the figureheads of the company basically and became like this, uh, this blotter of everything that was going on from the actual hardware manufacturers. So we had Nintendo Power. We had Sega Visions from Sega, obviously. And, uh, they were, I think they self produced it for a while and then it moved on to, uh, IDG, so like the people who made GamePro were making the official Sega magazine as well. I was getting that for free for a long time, and I had no idea why, because I didn't have a Genesis <laughs> or any kind of Sega console. It was just showing up in my house. I'm like, okay, free magazine. Yeah, I, guess I like so. it. You hit the demographic, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, the sort of like, um, you know, the company talking directly to the reader um, that you saw, especially in Nintendo Power, like that really always reminded me. It had sort of the same vibe as Marvel's bullpen bulletins. I don't know if you guys read Marvel comics back then, but they'd always have like a mm. couple of pages where you know Jim Shooter or Ralph or Tom Tom DeFalco or whoever was currently running the company would would write, and they'd have like some editor for some book write in and uh, just to kind of talk about the behind the scenes stuff. Like to me, that was uh, always yeah. really fascinating. And Nintendo Power, especially uh, more so than than even any of the other competing similar publications kind of got into that and gave you this like this little tiny hint and probably not a very honest hint about what life there was like, <laughs> but it was very intoxicating and um, really fueled my teenage, not even teenage, like preteen desire to become a Nintendo play counselor. Yeah. If not, if not overly positive, then at least uh, suitably neutral <laughs> about everything. Say, I think the Sega visions was more towards the extreme of that. Just like, Oh mm-hmm. man, here's what's going on in the world of Sega. It's all awesome. Don't you know? But like Nintendo Power is just a lot of uh, maps and also useful strategies for people more than that's probably what most people got from it. What was the Turbo Graphics one called? Uh, that was Turbo Play. I got yes. that too. Yeah. Yes. And that was from uh, uh, Larry Flint Publications. Oh yeah. yeah. Who made uh, video games and computer entertainment, and they were the right. people who were making Turbo Play. And of course, you know there were uh, the other publication companies were making their own sorts of system centric magazines as well around that time. So we had Mega Play. From Sendai, the EGM people, uh-huh. and Turbo Force, they did little things. Little things that, you know, didn't really last that long compared to the official ones, but, you know, they tried to uh, keep the competition going and, you know, keep fans of those platforms, uh, you know, anticipating something. I know, I know the TG16 magazine had a, I had one with an Adam's Family cover, and, but the game sure. is, you play as the Adam's Family's lawyer in that yeah. game. <laughs> it's such a weird concept. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's very strange. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh God. Back then, it was probably just because they didn't like, have the rights or something. Whereas nowadays, you'd be like, "Oh, this is like, really innovative take on doing something." Like, yeah, they had the the dad from Clueless's likeness rights, but <laughs> yes. no one else's. Oh man, thank you for reminding me of that game. Jeez, yeah, yeah it was a crazy one. Yeah, I mean, there was also around like the late '80s, all these game magazines started to finally pop up. I guess maybe sort of as answers to Nintendo Power, maybe sort of not really, but I mean, there was um, Electronic Gaming Monthly, which did start as um, Electronic Gaming Review or something. Yeah, I remember it was something yeah. a little different, but I can't recall. Yeah, it was something. Yeah, and that was started uh, basically by uh, Steve Harris, who uh, I think also at the time was on the U.S. National Video Game Team, hmm. right? Just one of those pros. I, I believe who, so. Yeah. If he wasn't, if he wasn't, he had been very recently. Yeah. I bet he owns a patriotic jumpsuit. I'm sure he does. Yeah, why not? I don't know if you saw the most recent issue of EGM, the print one, uh, had like, C. Harris did like a retrospective on like where it came from. I don't remember all the details, but it was, it was something to the effect of he had known some people who were going to start their own and then they kind of handed it over to him. Yeah. I'm, I'm blank on some of the details. That's, well, that particular <laughs> story is not, totally different from game pros either because 
Well, GamePro was started by a guy named uh, Patrick Farrell, who just uh, got these people together and sort of like did this, uh, you know, this homegrown magazine, except it, he wanted it, it, it stood out because it did look a lot better than a lot of things out there. It was more professionally looking, but it was also sort of intended to be like this sort of ad vessel <laughs> for mm. game companies. And it was not a very uh, impartial uh, magazine at all. But then it was scooped up by IDG, and then they ended up uh, publishing it from from then on, and uh, yeah, sort of keeping the, the spirit of that alive. So yeah, similar stories in that way. You have sort of guys who came from certain parts of the industry or wanted to be part of the industry and got got some people together and made a magazine. Now, to go back to EGM, I think one of the defining things, especially in those uh, several early years of EGM, was that it just lifted so much from Famitsu and all the other <laughs> Japanese magazines. Like Bob said, you know, looking at Super Mario 4 for the first time and seeing these screenshots and stuff, like those were just basically copied out of Famitsu oh, wow. or whatever else. Huh. Yeah, that yeah they there, got was, from there Japan. was no shame back then. Yeah. I, I, one of my, like, vividest memories of EGM was when they did Street Fighter. They had, like, a, a move chart where they had, you know, if you press short with when you're in the air it does this kick and it's this big grid of like what every animation would look like yeah and i didn't realize for like 10 years later that that was totally ripped out of yeah Japanese oh magazine. my god they also lifted uh, famitsu's review styles yeah. the review yeah. crew the cross review the t- big table of guys that, that i do know yeah of course yes is there a statute of limitations on this thievery can i still sue <laughs> look out egm it's been too long standing who knows it might even be worth mentioning just a in brief, um, how much more advanced the Japanese game publishing market was, like the the magazine mm-hmm. and book publishing market was in the 80s than it was here. I mean, we had, you know, computer magazines, but over there they had so many more magazines. I mean, Japan is kind of a boutique market for publishing and mm-hmm. all kinds of tiny, like, hundred circulation type magazines can, can survive over there somehow. And... Um, you know, if, if you go over to Japan and look in some of the retro shops, you'll find, like, extensive strategy guides for arcade games from the early 80s and, and Famicom games from, like, 1985. Like, yeah. you know, 200-page books on how to beat Tower of Draga or something. Uh, and that yeah. kind of thing. You know, we had the Jeff Roven Pac-Man books and kind of, like, general tip mm-hmm. books by Zach Meston or whatever. Oh, yeah, wow. But we didn't we didn't have the, the very specific granular publications that they did in Japan. And that yeah. that sort of, like... I don't know that um that sort of Japanese I wouldn't say obsession but attention to detail and um meticulousness that was applied to console games really informed a lot of the US publications of the of the late 80s and and I don't just mean all the things that EGM stole wholesale from Famitsu yeah but Nintendo Power was actually for the most part created in Japan and uh then sort of localized mm-hmm. in English it was a collaboration between uh Japanese and uh, U.S. publishing houses. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I-, I think it's kind of inevitable for those of us who grew up really sort of playing console games and, and following those magazines to have been maybe not deliberately, but um, subconsciously influenced or, you know, touched by sort of a Japanese aesthetic and approach to publishing. I remember reading a, like a Time magazine or Newsweek or something in, in say, 1988 or so, that uh did a roundup of like all the video game magazines and they preferred to Nintendo Power as mm-hmm. having peanut butter and jelly layout. I think I've mentioned this yeah. before. Um but it didn't occur to me until much later that that's just kind of the Japanese publishing aesthetic. Just like throw crap at a page and 
who cares if it's you right. know, graceful or elegant? Just get as much information in there as you can. It's a very like messy, almost chaotic visual approach, and, uh, and that, that came and it through. Starts and, on the covers, yeah, <laughs> even that, on the covers. That's just what I like. All the text. That's what I liked about it because it felt like it was meeting kids on their level. Where like another kids magazine, like Ranger Rick, would be like, "Here's some black text on a white background and a picture of a fox or something." <laughs> Nintendo Power is like, "Here's like a million sidebars. All this clip art we're throwing in for no reason, right. like." Different, like a different color in the back of every page, for every page, regardless of what, if it's covering the same game or not. It just yeah. like cra- just crazy fun layouts, even though they're not maybe the most elegant. Yeah. Here's Clash of Demon Head. It's a cool game, and here's a little picture of a guy that we drew with his head exploding for some reason. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. yes. It's like Mad Magazine, where like all the little drawings in the margins. That's what it kind oh, of yeah, reminds yeah. me. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah, they should have gotten Sergio Aragones to uh, to do <laughs> Nintendo Power illustrations. That would be amazing. And then a folded in the back by El Jaffe. Yeah. Now, I'm certainly not decrying the sort of lifting Japanese content for these magazines because it did uh, basically work out for us as the readers. I mean, and that contributed to part of the what I like to call the magic of of these game magazines because we had these first looks regularly, as regularly as possible, you know, from Japan or things that we'd never get or things that we would get, you know, months and months later. And, you know, that is just as important, at least to me, more than, you know, any sorts of strategy or whatever. I mean, or, you know, if you were uh, talented enough, you could send an envelope art as well. But like, that's not really something that a lot of us enjoyed as much as, you know, seeing things that uh, were on the way. And uh, yeah, it was pretty exciting. And yeah, I don't, I don't begrudge them at all for just going ahead and lifting stuff straight out of Famitsu or, or what have you. Uh, you know what, Bob? Let's let's take a detour because you want you, okay. <laughs> you, you were talking about those those books. Yeah, yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about a little bit about those hint books and things right. that came out I well, guess, during the nineties, mostly from Jeff Rovin. Right, <laughs> was right. One of those hacky writers who would do anything, you know, just for a buck. I think he wrote even God. I think we went over this before, but I think he ghost writes like Tom Clancy novels or something now, mm-hmm. something like that, something related to that, like yeah. war novels, but. They were a series, and there's got to be dozens of them, just like how to win a Nintendo games, like different volumes of that, how to win it, Super Mario Brothers. Um, obviously unauthorized. The covers were just like text on a colored background, no well, pictures or anything like that. Yeah, so were the insides. Not, yeah, not even like a, a drawing of a mushroom to like hint at anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, my mom would just buy me books because reading was better than no reading. So I would just have all these paperback, <laughs> you know, how to win yes. Nintendo games books. And I yeah. think reading about a lot of these games was more fun than playing them because the picture you had in your mind was much more, you know, compelling than what you would see on the screen for like Probably. a crappy game, yeah. you know. Um, especially like reading about uh, things like Karnov, like what the hell? Like what is this game? Like I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen it. I've seen pictures, but man, this this is really compelling. But um, yeah, and things like um, I think Russell De Maria is that his mm-hmm. name? Like Demaria. Demaria is yeah. that okay? I know he wrote a ton of those books, and um, the completely unauthorized guides, which is what they would normally be called, had these yeah. crazy like '90s pop art covers with like aardvarks and armadillos on them or something. And <laughs> dragons uh, and that- wizard usually. Yeah. yeah, stuff like that. But I would learn about unauthorized Nintendo games through these because, uh, you know, Nintendo Power wasn't writing about these things like Color Dreams games oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, oh. Captain Comic and things like that. So, and also I would learn about like peripherals and um, other things that were just not being covered a lot. So those those guys were kind of handy, even though they weren't the most. Uh, they didn't really illustrate what they were talking about. Yeah, true. Yeah, that that trend lasted well into the late '90s. I remember um, our friend Andrew Vestal wrote a uh, a totally unauthorized strategy guide for Final Fantasy VIII that just mm. has like uh you know the basically kind of a reproduction of the Hokusai wave in front of Mount Fuji on the cover. Like what the hell that has to do with Final <laughs> Fantasy VIII aside from the fact that, you know, the game comes from Japan, I have no idea. But that's 
that's kind of the cover that yeah. he was forced to use because it wasn't authorized. But yeah. you know, uh-huh. inside is like a full strategy guide. And I think Mark McDonald actually wrote a around the same time like a really extensive Pokemon guide that didn't have yeah. any official illustrations yes. inside. Uh, I, I had him actually sign that book and gave it away to a Retronauts reader a long time ago. Oh, yeah. cool. <laughs> I do remember though reading one of those books. Um, this is like sort of like the parents' guide to Nintendo games, and I, I just mm-hmm. bought it because, or my parents bought it for me, just because it was just something to read about Nintendo games. Yeah, and they were just sort of going through all the violence, and the guy was remarking how strange the concept of 1942 is, and like his son was asking him if if people in the pl- if there were people in the planes he was shooting down, it was troubling. Like I remember reading things like that as a kid. Like I never have these thoughts, but uh, the guy also pointed out, like as an adult, the, that Mega Man's two Mega Man two's music is awesome. He's like, this music is great. Yeah, right. and also that the Clash of Demon Head, the enemies look like they were drawn by R. Crumb, and I was like, who's our crumb. I'm going to look this up, and I was like, "Oh, not, not the best thing for a ten year old." Day Bob up. became a man. Yeah, yeah no kidding. <laughs> I got a Mister Natural tattoo, and uh, yeah, history wrote itself. But even those books, you know, they have roots also in like the earlier '80s when people, you know, that was the basic way to write about video games was to make this these compilation hint books because it was all about Pac-Man patterns and how to God. score higher in Defender. Can you imagine just being on a bus and reading a paperback about Pac-Man strategies? <laughs> well, I, I think I would actually enjoy that more now. Than oh I yeah, that's true. Yeah, You'd be like, true. oh, what a hipster. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Uh, but yeah, the, yeah, I also got those those pulpy little books as well because they were all well they were mostly next to the magazines and they also said nintendo on them so yeah i I think they came printed on yellow paper just because the quality was so poor they were just yellow through transit (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i'd pick up some of jeff roven's other books like his unauthorized uh, ninja turtles uh trivia book Mm. (laughs) man he was hitting on all fronts yeah Whatever the kids like these days. Yeah. Great SEO and all those titles. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. IRL SEO, exactly. <laughs> all right. Um, so, yeah, Electro- Electronic Gaming Monthly was uh, under the umbrella of Sendai, which was the publishing company that I believe Steve Harris did start. Mm. And, of course, they did make other magazines after that. They made, uh, like I said, the system-specific ones. Super NES Buyer's Guide, Mega Play, Turbo Force. So yeah, they made a whole bunch of other different sort of supplements over the years as well. So, and that includes like EGM2, which I think was like the oh, real source, of, well, the first uh, game magazine sequels. <laughs> uh, which is kind of crazy because, you know, at the time EGM was sort of growing in page count and then they God. would spill it all over into a whole other magazine that uh, was close to meeting that same page count every month or so. But, mm. Yeah, I mean, they they tried to sort of differentiate EGM2, or at least they wrote about how they wanted to. But, and uh, I think so. Uh, GamePro had their second magazine too, right? Well, they had Swap Pro, Swap Pro. which was just like, you know, all the tips and stuff that they yeah. put in from okay. the main magazine. Yeah, they did not really – they were not as big on sort of spinoffs and stuff, mm. except for, you know, when they took over Sega Visions. Yeah, theirs was mostly like, you know, one-offs and, you know, Swap Pro regulars as well. So yeah. EGM2 was like half – strategy half arcade in theory i think that's yeah, how they pitched it initially theory. but then it came out like two weeks later so they were like they, they at least the the marketing line would be like oh so we can sneak in all like the latest news yeah. that you wouldn't you don't have to wait like a whole month for which really just meant like one or two pages at the front right. with like hey here's some new screenshots but they did have a lot of yeah they did after a while have a lot of shared content yeah and... i think as, if i remember correctly as time went on it kind of became more of uh just the same magazine yeah. and then became expert game mm-hmm also, you know, around this time was the uh, beginnings of Game Informer, uh, which mm. was, you know, still going. I think probably probably one of the longest running consistently game they, magazines out there. Yeah. They're happy in Minnesota. Yeah. And uh, you could only 
uh, get it originally through, uh, Funko Land. Yeah, yeah. Funko Land, which, uh, then got swallowed up by, uh, GameStop or became GameStop, whatever. The whole thing is too messy now. I can't remember. Whatever. Corporate overlords. Yeah, they used to do, you know, the used game swaps and it was, uh, optionally by mail since i didn't have a funko land near me i just did the the mail order stuff and when they would send you a box of trade games or whatever they would always throw in a game informer and it was usually like a pamphlet like 16 pages long but it was you know partial to full color color front page they'd have popular games on the cover and also some obscure games funko's racket back then was selling cleaning kits and not magazine subscriptions is that correct (laughs) more or less yeah (laughs) partly yeah (laughs) They tried both, I'm sure. Warranties. Unfortunately, I don't know the whole origin story of Game Informer exactly. But I I do find it kind of interesting that there was this game magazine that was basically, you could only get it one way and it was for, you know, whoever walked into that particular store. I find that interesting because, you know, you don't see a lot of other examples of that, at least from that time. It's sort of, it's sort of like, well, Game Informer and then you go back a bit and then you have zines. I mean, where does that, (laughs) there's nothing in between really. So I, I find it interesting when you have all these other magazines that are on the grocery store shelves and then you have Game Informer, which you can only basically get one way and basically only subscribe to it or, you know, get it as a handout. Game fans started out of a store. Oh, yes. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll yeah I'm, oh, I'm, we, kind of, we kind of touched on this with Sega Visions, but if you remember, a lot of publishers had their own um, sort of in-house publications that you mm. could send in your your uh, business reply card and get a uh-huh. subscription to... Let's see. I remember Squaresoft had the Ogopogo Examiner. Um, mm-hmm. Sunsoft had some kind of uh, little publication that they sent out like three three issues of. Um, there were quite a few others. Uh, those were the two that I remember best. Yeah. Oh. I was getting American Sammies in the mail for some reason. <laughs> sure. And SNK did one. Yeah. The bygone era of the information card. <laughs> <laughs> You would have all these, you'd see all the game ads in the very tiny type. They'd say, circle this number on the information card. Then you would... Su- Can you imagine that now? Like, I, know. I, I want more ads. <laughs> I know. Well, <laughs> I mean, but totally. I, but it was just entertainment, like, uh, man. Yeah, I, w- I would get like the Sunday paper and like, I want to see the Target ads because I want to see what games really Right. Yeah. yeah, same thing. So you would do that. You would circle the numbers and fill it out and then send it in. And then uh, maybe, God willing, you maybe, you know, weeks or months later, you would finally get a newsletter from one of these companies or something. Uh, I mean... A lot of them, and in my experience, I'm sure your other guys were all these, you know, third-party NES publishers, mm-hmm. Capcom, American Sammy, mm-hmm. uh, Seda, whoever else. I mean, they would sort of try and make a regular thing out of their company newsletters that they would send to people. Sometimes not as much because I think they were probably swamped with other duties and it took yeah. them weeks and months to – They're rarely more than a few pages. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Capcom's actually, you know, they did a good job for a while. Capcom, they would have nice bonuses and stuff. One of them, one of their newsletters, like the entire other side of it was like this giant Mega Man art poster from Japan that they just, you know, reprinted there. Hmm. So I had that up in my room. I think a lot of that stuff was reprinted from Japan, or at least those newsletters were kind of like mirrored after Japanese versions Mm -hmm. of them. Yeah, I think it probably goes both ways in some ways, yeah. I mean, when your whole office is like five people, I'm sure you're going to get some (laughs) inspiration from your Japanese parent company. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's one of those other magic things I, I, I remember fondly. It was just, you know, yeah, sure, you're just getting more ads, but sometimes, you know, if you like the company and what they're putting out, yeah. it feels more special to you. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, now that's evolved into company blogs and community sites and things of that nature. And yeah, it's all, it's all craziness now. So I did mention, uh, uh, LFP, Larry Flint, who did <laughs> start his own, uh, video game magazine, video games and computer entertainment, which mm-hmm. was, 
one of those funny outliers because their whole look and feel had a more mature uh, had had more maturity to it. I think. Yeah, uh, their layout especially in the early days. Yeah, yeah. I would read that, and I would read like electronic games in its later days, just because those. I mean, I guess because read anything, but <laughs> yes. like th- those always seemed like the ones that were taking themselves more seriously and were like, okay, we're the grown ups. Um, for better and worse, uh, but yeah, it was just like a, a it, it showed that different kind of people played games to me. Yeah. Like if you just read EGM or or GamePro, you might think all games were for kids, and you know you can make that argument. But <laughs> but there was a sense if you read that they're like, oh, maybe these games are still kind of childlike, but older people are actually playing them. Mm. And yeah, they would uh, cover a lot of computer games. Obviously, that was part of the magazine's name, and that, that was like some of my first looks into what was going on with mm. PC games. And then that would lead to me maybe buying some other PC game magazines and looking what else was cool, what else I can uh, wish about having <laughs> for years and years. I had that same. I mean, it's not on here. I guess we're not going to talk about PC Gamer, but uh, we can. I mean, just briefly. I mean, I had the same thing where I would buy. I was buying PC magazines for years before I had a PC just to read them and be upset about yeah, like. Yeah. These really cool adventure games that I couldn't play. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and collecting too. demo discs that I couldn't use either. Yeah, <laughs> I had uh, one issue of I think it was Sendai's Computer Game Review, which also uh, covered 16-bit console games only for some reason, mm. but very minimally. Uh, but they had like this, this walkthrough of like Sam and Max hit the road, and I was like, God dang it! I I need this game one one way or another. And it took a few years, but I would just treasure that issue because I was like, Oh God, someday, someday yeah. I'm gonna play Sam and Max, yeah. and eventually I did. Thank God. Um, but yeah, uh, no. There's a sense of like getting through a game vicariously because you know, you, yes. like it's like watching a YouTube version of somebody else play it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I I read a lot more magazines than I did play games at that time. <laughs> yeah, and now look at us. Now we're accomplished writers and everything. We see without all that vocabulary entering <laughs> our heads. I mean, no, that's actually actually reminds me of something that Bob mentioned as well because like I would read Nintendo Power and I think I they would use the uh, odd big word that I could never understand for a while. Oh uh, yeah, like I, I learned the word simultaneous because of sure, Nintendo Power. Sure. They would use it every other sentence. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and then that eventually became like uh, one of the <laughs> buzzwords of our, of our generation as well, like on the playground that sort of thing. Like, yeah. Oh god, mm-hmm. it's two player simultaneous. If it's not, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and so on. Yeah. So, uh, you know, back to LFP, I mean, Video Games and Computer Entertainment uh, was headed by uh, Andy Eddy for quite a while mm-hmm. as the editor-in-chief of that. And, yeah, they kept it They kept a pretty high bar of quality, and they would do nice things, like a nice, like, multi-month blowout on the Super Famicom as well and take nice pictures of it and everything. So I really appreciated that, and I think that did inform sort of my, you know, design sense later on. And uh, But after a while, like, they retooled the magazine. I think they got rid of a lot of the staff, and they just called it Video Games. Mm-hmm. And it became a much more flashier hmm. or attempted to be flashier magazine. Uh, originally edited by uh, Chris Gore. Yeah. who uh, He's still around. Yeah, he is. He was the editor, creator of Film Threat, the magazine. He does a lot of TV stuff. Oh, he did I a lot of G4 stuff. Yes, yeah, yes. okay. Yes, now he's all frosty tips and stuff, but yeah. And, uh, and he was just running video games. He didn't seem you know particularly interested in I mean, he is one of those sorts of geeky guys talking about geek culture, that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, he, was, he did not really communicate that so much in video games. It was still an interesting magazine, but because they sort of went with a different look and sort of tried to be like the other guys, it did not become as special. Um, and so after a few years of that, they also uh, just spun off slash also retooled it into Tips and Tricks, uh, which was, you know, they're obviously their code section for quite a while. And so they made Tips and Tricks magazine, much like Swapro did years before, and then that just 
tips and tricks like outlasted like all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> outlasted yeah, Vegas. if you told me tips and tricks was still around, I would believe you. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> it, might, it might be. It's, a, it's an insert in Hustler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it is finally uh, gone. Okay. Yeah. Unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, that that's, did stick around for quite a while. And yeah, they had dedicated people making all, all those strategies month after month for that stuff. Or maybe mm. it was by month. I can't remember. It, it, anyway. it, it varied. I think as time went on, it, yeah. it got less frequent. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah. Who would who would guess? Larry Flint, of all people, would de- delve into that sort of market. Yeah, they'd always tell stories of like, oh, we're we're showing some game in our demo room, and you know, like some musician would come by, or somebody who just happened to be in the building for one of Larry Flint's other pl- publications. Yeah. <laughs> um, it sounded like uh, there were a lot of people who were kind of shocked by that because they just weren't used to that world, and they're like, uh, yeah. oh, okay, yeah, no kidding. There are people taking photos next door. But it, it makes sense. I mean, Larry Flint had his pulse or his finger on the pulse of things that men like. That's yeah, a good mostly point. Mostly porn, yeah. but also that combined in PC Accelerator magazine, right? <laughs> yes. Hey, well, there was insight. That's true. Now, we can get to those a bit later. Um, so we've been dancing around this one. So <laughs> let's just go ahead and talk a bit about Die Hard Game Fan. Why dance? It's the best. Okay. Well, dance okay, on its grave. Okay, fine. <laughs> yeah. Dance in a good so, way. So Game Fan is, in, in retrospect, my, my both my favorite and my least favorite of mm. all these because mm-hmm. in a sense I realize how like bad and harmful it was for me to just like believe all this like blind stuff that really was not very um mm-hmm. in my best interest but the other sense tied like the just the the memory of a magazine that had that much personality mm-hmm. and that much like um care put into yeah. it um, raw voice was was, sort of. was so fascinating to me as a kid like I, I couldn't get enough of it yeah. Well, let's start from the beginning of that story. It was originally an import store, right? Yeah, or... Die Hard in, uh, in the Valley in L.A., they had a, a store that it was called uh, Die Hard Game Club at one That might not have been, yeah. been the or just name Die the Hard, whole time. Yeah. But, yeah, um, and I, I got to go there a few times. And apparently, so in, there was like a room in the back behind the, the store where they started publishing this magazine for mm-hmm. like the first, I don't know, 10 issues or something like that. Um, and, yeah, it was – I, I guess it just was – in some sense, it, it's kind of cool in that it was like this really independent magazine that just kind of got bigger and bigger and then got like distributors and became like a real national thing. Did you ever – was Dave Halverson ever in the store? I don't know. When I was that young, I was, you know, just kind of looking at the games and I didn't, I didn't <laughs> yeah. know any better. Yeah. But, you but don't yeah, know what E-Storm was... looks like? What's that? You don't know what E-Storm looks like oh. in real life? Well, yeah. It's, he's got similar hair. Yeah. <laughs> you know that much. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, GameFan did sort of become like this hardcore gamer voice for quite a while because not only would they put a lot of care, like you said, into a lot of import game coverage, but they would just blow out every single page with the, these mm, super clear mm. screenshots that they all took themselves. And it was just like all this homegrown effort. It was just craziness. There, there was so much like activism in that magazine. Yeah. Like, mm. you can't believe what publishers are keeping from you, like, these games in Japan that they won't release over here. And like... As time has gone on, I've realized that some of that was just kind of made up, um, but there was such, like, passion behind it that, like, you could tell they believed what they were saying. I I didn't read a lot of it. I do remember a lot of pages being – the background would be a blown-up screenshot with text on top of it. It was kind of hard to read. (laughs) I don't know if that was a trend. Oh, yeah. Just maybe in the episodes I – sorry, the issues I picked up. (laughs) No, I mean, that was was their whole thing is that they wanted it to feel like it was a custom thing on every page. And I I loved it, how they would, like, cut out certain characters and just, like, put little – like uh, almost like animated GIFs, but not animated, um, all over their pages, and uh, it was great. Yeah, for they're sure. overclocking Photoshop. Yeah, mm-hmm. 
I mean, again, that sort of informed me in a way too, and some other people as well, because you know, sort of cutting out pixel art and putting that on the page has become sort of a a more common thing, especially with the uh, the retro focused magazines. Sure. So yeah, I mean, they sort of it was a nice nice starting point for all that. But yeah, it was uh, originally just a bunch of guys from this store. Yeah, it was like a catalog. So, so initially, I think if you called their uh, their phone line um, and like you know, it would be one of those like press one to talk to so and so, press two to hear about this. But they would have like information read mm-hmm. just from like Japanese magazines. They'd be like, oh, you know, this game is coming out soon, and it's got X Y Z in it, and like that was a form of information that was free. You didn't have to pay mm-hmm. for like uh, these tip lines. So yeah, that was fun. I would just call up sometimes and listen to that, and not even talk to somebody. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wasn't, like I, and I think I changed like once a month or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Wasn't Jeez. this magazine um, literally written by children, like teens? Like there were like teenage writers on staff. Uh, well, I mean, pretty much every magazine we've mentioned probably had teenagers writing for okay. it at some yeah. point. For some reason, I just I'm yeah, remembering every, every like, publication had a Wesley Crusher. Okay, <laughs> I remember Die Hard being just like young, very very young writers, super young. It was also one of the first where you kind of like, yes, they were they were characters, but you could tell there were like people writing these things. It wasn't just written for anybody. Like they, mm-hmm. they had personality coming through. And even what if Dave Halverson was, were half those characters, sure. No, that, <laughs> and there was a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, there were multiple people who had different personas and whatever. Um, yeah, and, yeah. So, so <laughs> sort of ground weird, for insanity. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that was just because they wanted to be creative or they wanted to seem like they were bigger than they were or what. But um, yeah, a bit of both, probably mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah, they were also some of the first evangelists for treasure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They got Gunstar Heroes off on the map. Um, also interesting in that because it was an import store, you know, in a certain sense, this was a magazine promoting import games that they yeah. would then sell in their store. Um, it didn't really come across quite that, but I think there was some of that kind of... Yeah, I mean, there were there were some infamous incidents, I think, where they would give the import version of a game really high scores. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when the U.S. version came out, they'd be like, man, this is crap. <laughs> there were a couple of Final Fantasy games that they did that, too. They just could not talk about how amazing Final Fantasy VIII was when it came out in Japan. And then, oh, yeah. you know, six months later, they turn around and are like, this game is stupid. Yeah. What it, a disgusting travesty. It's not even in Japanese anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> God. Okay. It, it was definitely I, I have to admit, the, I, I, I never really read uh, Game Fan uh, until, you know, kind of its... Uh, Later version, you know, sort of like the last couple of years before it, uh, before mm. it went away. Just because the cover art was always so disgusting looking to oh, me. I loved it. Like, <laughs> I, I feel really bad for saying that because, you know, like I appreciate the fact that they actually created original cover art, but I just really hated that airbrush style. And I, yeah, could, like I would never pick up the magazine just because like the, the cover art was such a turnoff to me. See, I was a total opposite. I, I learned what airbrush was from that magazine and I like, uh. I was like, Mom, can you take me to this art store? Like, I want to buy an airbrush. Oh. And, like, I never did because, like, you know, I didn't know anything about it. But, like, I was so fascinated by the concept that I think it's just yeah. different taste. Game Pro's house artist was similarly airbrush crazy. I feel like they hired him out yeah. of, it, like, a T-shirt kiosk yeah. at the mall. Yeah, <laughs> he just... had a more – he had a cleaner style, though. Whereas yeah, it was. Game it was, more was like – yeah. it, it was kind of like, um, you know, underground heavy metal album cover R. Crumb artist. Like, if you wanted to say a video game publication – looked like our crumb it was definitely oh, i can't even remember his name the guy who did the the, the airbrushing for was it francis uh, mao no game fan no, that was game, uh, game was a uh, terry wolfender yeah yes that's it i yeah. mean like like he, he had that kind of uh underground comics look to his art uh-huh. whereas uh, francis mao was much more like very clean very like uh, mainstream very comics disciplined yeah 
very aspirational, very comical, main, yeah. mainstream comic book sort of mm. style mm. to it. Yeah, Terry Wolfiger, he's no uh, Susumu Matsushita, but uh, he did add some character to that magazine. Is that the, the Mitsuga? <laughs> yeah, that yeah. Was, okay. That was yeah. like the best thing Edge ever did when they had their Japan issue and they brought him, uh, I don't know how you pronounce the name. Matsushita. Yeah, they brought him in to do like their, their cover and uh, looked just like a Famitsu cover. Yeah. It was great. <laughs> Actually, I don't even remember that. Oh, I'll have to track that down or look at a picture great. or something. Yeah. So, <laughs> Game Fan did, though, I mean, they redesigned after a few years and they did, uh, change their covers to add more official-ish looking art. Like, they had a Donkey Kong Country cover with, with original art that was done by Rare, hmm. originally rendered art. So, I mean, that added some bit of legitimacy in some ways. Uh, the thing is that inside they did not improve as much. I mean, I, I don't know how to use the word improve even really, but I mean, you did sort of read Game Fan knowing what you were going to get. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted that, then great. If you didn't, well, then why are you reading it? You know, because you would get a lot of editorial that was, uh, if not done by teenagers, then certainly someone with a teenager's mind and just <laughs> this sort of crazy evangelism over every single game pretty right. much on, on every page. And, you know, if you were a hardcore gamer and you were the kind of guy or gal who wanted that sort of information regularly, then, yeah, you were probably going to read Game Fan one way or another. Otherwise, it's just like, this is a bit too rough, too harsh for me. It's, you know, it doesn't really work out. I loved it. Like, and you, you look at the reviews and, like, they cared about the difference between, like, a 98 and a 97. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like, that, that's kind of what defined that magazine in my mind yeah. is just, like, that passion over those details that, you know, were terribly misguided a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, to put it one way, yeah. But in, in the magazine's defense, like, you just didn't see that sort of populist enthusiasm in other print publications at the time they were much more like they were trying to be more serious more right. legitimate or respectable or whatever whereas yeah game fan was just like whatever we're game fans duh it's kind of the giant bomb of its day i mean giant bomb is much more disciplined and ethical and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. but it has a similar kind of feel to me hmm. yeah true true i mean it came back. I love Monitor. Right? It still is around. It's still around. Okay. Well, okay. So here's the thing. It, it's not really. They haven't made a new issue in like I don't know a year or two. Um, but if you subscribe to their iPad app, they keep trying to sell you on new subscriptions. Like I'll, I'll get oh. reminders like once a week. Like here's your discount on your new subscription for GameFan. <laughs> and it just reminds me of the old days how like there were always like rumors and talk of you know uh shady stuff going on with the printing and you you would only be able to find an issue once every like three months and you can never really figure out how it was going at the end like there were lots of distribution problems they had and uh lots of crazy like behind the scenes stories um i don't know if that stuff's still online but remember like zach meston was doing all that like reporting on like the end of game fan that was kind of fascinating to me and to me as a player or just like a reader i was like that almost added like an extra something it was like yeah. oh there's something mysterious and like cool it's like rockstar these days like you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes but it's like you can tell there's some weird stuff there and that almost made it more <laughs> yeah. like interesting i don't know and again when you have these hardcore gamers reading this magazine and sort of you know uh becoming attached to these personas in the magazine you know anything that you hear about them or what's happening or what's going yeah. on with the future of the magazine like yeah that becomes like really insanely important drama <laughs> dave, yeah. dave halverson is a compelling villain yes from what i've heard uh huh. Or also, uh, Eric uh, Malonis. Is that his name? Oh, the one who, he took over. At yeah, the he end? took over his EIC uh, for for Game Fan, and then that lasted a little bit, and then he tried to restart it as a new magazine oh, yes. called Hardcore Gamer. No, no, Game Go. Oh, Game Go. Excuse me. Hardcore Gamer was different. Carl called. Yeah, yeah, different magazines. All right, Game Go. Whatever. Yeah. Same sort of failure. <laughs> um, 
Wow, that's kind of harsh. Yeah. <laughs> can't can't ignore the facts. <laughs> they announced Stretch Panic. <laughs> Let history decide. Yeah. Uh, yes, again, they carried that sort of torch for treasure, and yeah, they announced the Stretch Panic on that first issue. Stretch Panic, which did oh, not yeah. end up being one of Treasure's best games, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, what? Did they manage to make a second issue of Game Go? So they did not, they did not publish a second issue, but they did have a second issue that was completed, mm-hmm. and the documents were released on an FTP, yeah, like yeah. The, the InDesign files or PDFs or whatever. <laughs> like Doom Shareware. I guess that was before InDesign. <laughs> yeah. I, I have those somewhere on a hard drive somewhere. I see. Yeah. It was an okay I- I- issue. It was better than the first one, actually. Yeah. Okay, and then there was Hardcore Gamer, um, which was uh, not so much uh, yeah, it was the from, same people from GameFan, but... Dimension Publishing, I think? Yeah. I, I might be confusing that. It Double was, Jump. Double Jump. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Strategy guys. Some people who had worked on GameFan, they would sort of uh, wanted to band together again and make a new magazine, much like we're doing with Retronauts. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that lasted a little bit longer, and that also got a good following to it. And yeah, that did... Uh, I don't know how long it lasted exactly, but... Uh, should well while we're while we're talking about diehard game fan, should we also talk about Gamers Republic? Oh yes, since that was uh, Halverson's oh, post game fan joint. Was that pre play? Yes, yes, okay. yes. It was pre play. It was uh, late nineties, and it was called Gamers Republic because apparently they had a dude from Designers Republic uh, <laughs> come up with a house style for the graphics. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it was a pretty cool looking magazine. The content was um, it was more sedate than than you might associate with Halverson a lot of the time. Sure. It dabbled a lot in anime, kind of in the back. Um, it was it was pretty similar to play, except it was not the oversized publication. And they, I, I remember they had some pretty good features from time to time. Yeah, I, I loved. It. Um, I thought the design was great. Um, yeah. I thought it was it was basically like a a more modern at the time like version of game fans layouts where things got a little cleaner and a little cl- like, but they were still kind of you know passionate. Um, rumors at the time, I have no idea, but it was like. Oh, they lost the rights to GameFan. There was some legal stuff going on, so they basically had to come up with some other magazine to kind of carry the torch. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I thought it was it was really really cool. I think actually, um, you know, I think that magazine ended up dying not not necessarily because of disinterest in the magazine or poor subscriptions or anything, um, but I think it died because of that whole Express dot com thing. Like there was this big media. Um, I don't know any other way to say it, but clusterfuck of, um, God, now it's, it's all kind of getting big and fuzzy, but do you guys remember like DVD express.com, which was like a big, big online DVD retailer back in the late nineties. They they tried to create this network. And part of that was, I'm, I'm positive that gamers Republic was the magazine they bought and then Mm. ended up just totally scuttling when that entire business collapsed, uh, about 2000 or so. Sorry, I thought like Penny Arcade and something awful had something to do were like related to that in some way. The Express.com uh, no, I think that was explosion. a different disaster. A different there were, there were a disaster. Of, yeah. was E-Front. E-Front, okay. Yeah, there Thank were you. a lot Thank of you. like really awful, vile people who abused content creators and also who like made sincerely bad choices despite, you know, having good intentions. Oh, sounds so, familiar. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's kind of a preview of today. Yeah. yeah. And they're all millionaires still. Yeah, everything everything has an origin point. It's, even the bad stuff. Um, yeah, you know, I never actually looked at Gamers Republic. Oh, never had, I don't know. I don't think out. I did. Can't remember why either. Maybe I was just <laughs> sick of just game. Fan too many people. game magazines. It, it was really. like if if game fan grew up. You know, like the, right. those guys got ten years older, but were still kind of had the same attitude yeah. and passion. And covered more anime. Yeah. Yeah, and then I mean they had anime magazine and then play and then like they had some other stuff too. I remember Mega Fan. 
Yes. Yeah. Which was awesome because it was super small. It was a digest-sized <laughs> right. version, basically, of Game Fan. I only remember one issue. I yeah, don't know there were only probably a couple. Yeah. I, I don't remember how many, but it was a very short run. Yeah. Um, and then I think it might have become a normal-sized magazine. I don't remember. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Too much to think about. God. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about another sort of company that came into the fray around the, the mid to late 90s was uh, Imagine slash Future who brought over Next Generation, which mm. was Edge in the UK. So they made this basically American version of Edge, mm. brought over as Next Generation, later Next Gen. And that was sort of uh, – <laughs> if, if Gamers Republic was Game Fan growing up, then maybe Next Gen was Gamers Republic growing up. <laughs> Even though I mean no, they were concurrent, no, no. they were concurrent, but it was I mean, like video games and computer entertainment coming back or something like that. Like it did not have anything to do with Gamers Republic. No, no, you don't understand what I'm talking. About. Okay, <laughs> I'm just trying to just trying to put it into perspective here. In that media in general had grown up. I'm not saying they're exactly the same, man. Calm down. Nonetheless, you were still right. <laughs> it is like if uh, VG and CE sort of came back because yeah, right. Was it, it was like a magazine that had been written about another topic. And all of a sudden, they were like, oh, okay, we're going to do this magazine about games. You know, it, it had yeah. that feel of somebody who hadn't come from game publishing's history. Mm -hmm. It was like something from, I don't know, out of the field. Sort of, you know, I think partly inspired by, like, Wired and what they were doing in the early 90s, yeah. sort of establishing what their format was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having lots of regular columnists and things and having, you know, just this... Uh, Coming, coming to games from a sort of older perspective. I remember, it felt almost um, like a newspaper. In some yeah, things. a lot more white space yeah. in, the, in that magazine. It wasn't yeah. just like, here's clip art, here's pro tips, here's screenshots. Yeah, very, very sparse by design. Yeah, mm -hmm. sort, of, sort, sort of eye-catching for a different way. Uh, but yeah, they, they, they would cover lots of different angles. They, they were not so big on exclusives or things. But still, I mean, if you were a hardcore gamer, you know, in a sense, and if you wanted to... Uh, pretend that you were treating games in a much more serious way than everybody else, and Next Generation was a good choice. And uh, I mean, not not to decry their editorial quality or anything, because they they kept it up pretty well, and they had uh, amazing interviews. Mm. Like they would interview yeah. these executives, Howard Lincoln, and people like that, and lots of interviews too, yeah. and, and photos of people too. Yeah. Like it was one of the first magazines that really did yeah. a lot of photos of developers of them in their element as it's going on. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, very, very, very sort of slightly infamous interviews with Howard Lincoln, things talking about Nintendo sixty four, and yeah. then uh, ninety nine Studios Kelly Flock. Who came, kind of gave this bizarre interview? He was trashing the competition quite, it, it quite willingly. It caught the industry in this time before it became more sanitized yeah. in PR and stuff. But when people were still kind of able to talk freely, and you know, the companies were small enough that they didn't have yeah. to worry so much about these things. When it was like, well, who else are we going to talk to at this convention? You know, retailers. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, here's here's somebody who might actually be a real journalist. It was amazing. You'd read like an interview, and somebody would be like. Willing to discuss their flaws. Like, yeah, I don't know if we're going to be doing that well with so-and-so yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. And in some of it, you look back and it, it seems kind of dated. And some of it, you look back and it seems like, you know, it could be written today. Mm -hmm. Jeremy, did you look at the Next Gen? Next Generation magazine? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was talking earlier about how EGM was the magazine I read kind of surreptitiously at the newsstand. But um in the mid 90s i actually became like a genuine devotee of of next generation magazine like mm. I, I think i picked up the uh the first issue was the one with laura croft on the cover back when tomb raider first came out and i started flipping through it and even though i didn't agree with everything they said like symphony of the night is stupid what <laughs> um yeah, yeah that's right. like they they had this um kind of wide-eyed enthusiasm for 
technological advancement. And, you know, yeah. in, in like 1995, 96, it really did seem like video games were really just leaping into the future with the N64 and the PlayStation, yeah. PC accelerators. So, like, they mm-hmm. really, really captured that. It was kind of, um, you know, the, the same way that Wired Magazine looked at just general technology and tech culture. Uh, Next Gen Magazine had that that same style. I didn't know about its relationship to Edge Magazine at the time. Like basically, it was a reprint yeah. of Edge content. But um, I really love the magazine. I liked when they started the uh, the website for Next Gen. Um, it was very, uh, it was extremely detached and like just kind of here's the information. When they expressed opinions, it was attributed to the entire staff. It was a very different mm. discipline, a much more like. Uh, almost a literary discipline uh, compared to other right. game magazines. And it seemed really appropriate for that sort of, uh, that period of video games where everything was was pushing forward. Uh, after they did the redesign and went from next generation to just next gen, I really lost interest. Like the quality went down, the print quality went down, yeah. the design went down. Like it, it just lost a little essence of, of what I had liked about the magazine. True. But for like three yeah. years, it was just... It was really fantastic. Oh yeah, um, that cover. And I, you know, I found myself really frustrated with, with uh, traditional game magazines at that point. Um, but there was something about about Next Gen that I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just basically the reviews seemed really out of place. Like they shouldn't have even had reviews in that magazine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And because were... everything else seemed like so forward thinking, and then all of a sudden, when you got the reviews, you're like, wait, are these do these people actually know what they're talking about? Mm. But no, like, video game isn't tech enough. It's <laughs> Yeah. Stupid. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think anyone would argue that it was probably the most like culturally relevant thing for, oh, yeah. the, for their, the industry itself. Their interviews and, and the features that they ran on hardware and on companies and developers, like those really pushed my awareness of video games as a creative mm-hmm. entity, as, you know, as a business, as, as something people made to an entirely different level because, you know, like Nintendo Power was all kind of trying to abstract the fact that, hey, this stuff is from Japan and no one likes Japan right now, so video games. And EGM was much more about, like, here's screenshots of what's coming out in three months. And Next Generation really uh, took the time to stop, you know, an edge before it, I guess, um, to say, like, where are these games coming from? Why are video games going the way they are? Like, what is the future of this business? And, you know, they, they would spend a lot of column inches, column inches talking to Trip Hawkins and, and letting yeah. him share his visions of the future, which all turned out to be wrong. <laughs> but, you know, for every one of those they did, they also had like crazy interviews with Shigeru Miyamoto or Bernie Stoller or, you know, Peter Moore, whoever, like really influential people. They would get into the particulars of PC accelerators and about, the um like really crazy technology that never really went anywhere like i, I can't even remember what it was called but was it the game galleon uh, i can't remember but oh, there was the one one, game yeah. no oh, it, it oh, actually right. wasn't galleon it was it was something else but there was one game that you know everyone was like what is the ideal tri- uh, polygon to use M- messiah and sega saturn was you know no that was that was tessellation mm. but you know sega saturn used um quadrahedrons or quadrilaterals or whatever and um, most people use triangles, but there was this one game that used circles. And oh, like, yeah. that's the only place I ever read about that game was like, here's a game whose polygon engine is based on circles. And, you know, you would just see stuff like that. And it all seemed so like it was very, very much of the zeitgeist of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, just like this kind of breathless enthusiasm for video games and for advancement and like the sense that, hey, this this medium is going somewhere. Uh, like Next Generation really caught that. 
And even though its tone was actually very, very sedate and professional and very restrained, as opposed to Game Fan, like that enthusiasm still came through just in what they chose to cover and the depth that they applied to it. Uh, yeah, so I would say that that period of, of game, uh, not game fan, of, uh, next generation, like say 95 90 to 98 is probably my favorite set of game publications ever. Like just so mm-hmm. much good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I could probably agree with that. Now, I want to step back a bit because the publisher of, uh, next generation at the time had also recently, uh, grabbed an older game magazine called Game Players. Mm. Oh, goody. Um, yeah. So game players, you know, back in the 80s, later 80s and stuff, I mean, it was a super plain magazine. It covered uh, pretty much every platform, including like Amiga and other PC stuff. And it would just, you know, be little bits of strategies and stuff. But it was all very cheap looking and uh, not 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 totally exciting compared to everything else that was on the shelves then. And not really about people who played games. No, <laughs> no, no, no. no Though really. they did manage to worm their way into my book fairs as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, they did produce the Game Players game tapes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, Where's your soundboard, Ray? Nah, not today. <laughs> oh, <That's> damn it. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, but then they, uh, they retooled the magazine basically into Ultra Game Players. And what Ultra Game Players was was sort of like um, – I guess maybe a notch or two above what Game Fan was. I mean, it How was. Dare it, you. It, it, <laughs> yeah, no, no, Matt Leone, you just you compared <laughs> uh, you compared Game Fan to Giant Bomb, but to me, like Ultra Game Players mm. was Giant Bomb before Giant Bomb. Yeah, like, it was really about the people. There were yeah, no aliases. It was, it was just like yeah. the dudes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and also the ladies. Yes, well, it's a, it had that dude essence. <laughs> it was very dudey. <laughs> it did. Uh, so but yeah. in a fun '90s way. Yeah. Yeah, it was a much flashier magazine. They put all the editors uh, up front, basically. You know, you would read the review pages, and they would have little portraits of the uh, editors making faces or whatnot, depending on what the tone of the review was. Yeah, and Bill Bill Donahoe totally looked like, or Donahue totally mm-hmm. looked like TV's Frank, and I really appreciated that. <laughs> yes, Bill Donahue was, you know, one of the standout staff members from there. Just this really sort of crazy, uh, or positioned as this crazy hard rocking guy. Short little stocky guy, fun loving, you know, craziness, crazy, crazy, crazy. There was and pictures so, of him and his band in the magazine right. too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. He was. There was a period of time where it seemed like everyone who worked for Game Magazine was in a band. <laughs> Remember this? <laughs> Probably. I, was I, it the uh, the Bay Area though, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe they're all like joining the ska movement. Yeah, some as it was are. happening. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Frank O'Connor, who now runs like the the Halo franchise at three four three. Uh, worked on game players, ultra game players. Yeah. So that, that's a that's quite a an ascent there. Yeah. yeah, and you know a lot of those people from game players would stick around for these other Imagine magazines. You know, some would go on to Next Generation, some would go on to a PSM, which was their uh, independent PlayStation magazine at the time, which later became the official PlayStation magazine Bowsers. after uh-huh. Ziff Davis's, and uh, you know all these other magazines, Xbox and whatnot. Just uh, as this. Uh, publication company grew and Slight, started uh, making different sorts of very things. big in Europe too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, now we know know them as Future, and they are very big in Europe as well. And uh, they later got their reins to Nintendo Power, and just sort of became the place for official 
company game magazine. Two two things about game players before we move on. Sure. If that's cool. Um, and I apologize for saying Goody earlier when the name came up. I just was like, <laughs> that was pure enthusiasm because I love sure. this magazine. I know what you're enthusiastic. It was like. it was I, crammed I with like it was like kind of like Nintendo Power in a, in a way. It's yeah. layout, just like pictures, images, yeah. graphics, cartoons everywhere. What I remember the most about it was um, if you're a subscriber, you totally rocked because you got this insider's newsletter that was in every subscription copy that was just. Pure inside jokes. It was like mm-hmm. a legend for reading the inside jokes mm-hmm. strewn throughout the magazine. It's so like them inviting you into their circle. Yeah, and it was like super crude photoshops of this this event. I think it was called like the gathering or something like that, where mm-hmm. this great monkey god was going to destroy the world, and it's like we must prepare for the gathering. And there were like you get masks of the editors in the mail with your subscription. Least, copy. Yeah, at least Bill Donahue. Yeah, at least him. It was like, but it was he looked like M Bison or whatever. Yeah, he with the photoshopped M Bison ad on it. So it was this really inclusive atmosphere that I feel like early gaming websites would eventually. Uh, adopt as their own voice yeah. and like even stuff like one up but another thing they did was super crazy long letter sections they had like at least between 10 <laughs> and 12 pages long letters oh, and it was all about like <laughs> cover art and like making jokes i mean that, it was a funny magazine maybe the humor is dated now but like i, I read it for its humor not just its video game yeah. content pretty reverent and yeah i i was there with you too and <laughs> just like yeah it's crazy every month uh but yeah, that's just like, it's such a crazy transformation from this super dry magazine that didn't really, wasn't going anywhere into something, you know, okay, now we're just going to have fun with it and uh, eventually people are going to love us for it. And yeah. Didn't it have some other name at the end? Uh, later on, they transformed it into Game Buyer. Okay. Sort of the, most of the same staff, but different sort of Yeah, that format. was like three issues, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty much focused on just. Prior to that, though, they had like another make, they had a makeover that got rid of a lot of the wackiness. It was their Mario 64 issue. I remember mm. seeing it and, um, I had subscribing, I think. And oh, that's it was what, the yeah. same name though, right? Or it was Ultra Game Players. Yeah. But they did, yeah, sort of get a little bit closer to next gen. Not exactly. But yeah. yeah. They sort of. <laughs> it did kind of to... kill the spirit. Yeah. I think that might have been also when Bill Donahue left. Uh-oh. I can't remember. Where is that guy? He was the I spirit. Don't... Yeah, I mean, he was a friendly guy. He, I mean, he would respond to emails and things. But yeah, then after that magazine, he sort of fell off the map. So uh, wherever you are, we salute you. Yeah, somebody find him. He'd be a fun interview. Yeah. Yeah, and then PSM, I mean... Do you have any memories oh, of that? Oh, yeah. This is like um, I, I sort of matured throughout the ages. So I started with Nintendo Power. I moved on to GamePro. Eventually, GamePro got a little too kiddy for me. By like age 12 or 13, I'm like, I don't want to read reviews from my cartoon characters. <laughs> no, so I, I transitioned to game players, and then I eventually moved into PSM. So I feel like I was aging with these magazines and like who they were ap- appealing to. But PSM felt like a great magazine for me as a teenager, especially in these like in- insane PlayStation years where the system was just taking off. Yeah, um, All these amazing games are coming out, and they were like – a little bit uh, – I think Chris Slate from Game Players was the EIC, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So it had that same sort of like enthusiasm, a lot less of the zaniness maybe because Bill Donahue wasn't there anymore. Yeah. But um, it was just like always about speaking to you, getting you excited. And they had a really great specific import coverage yeah. that would just take like three or four pages and just like write about all these great mag- uh, Japanese games that might not even be coming over here. They were just like so into the games as well that um, they wanted to share this information with you too. And also the the magazine would come with like – this is like 90s, like peak, like garbage time. So you would just get um, bumper stickers and lid stickers and memory card yeah, stickers and yeah, posters yeah. and pins. And ev- like it would just come with just like all this garbage and like stuff to the magazine. I say garbage affectionately. But yes, yes. Because but because nobody's going to ship a magazine with that much stuff in it these days. But no. it was just like a, like, an, like a little a little gift to PlayStation people at the mm-hmm. time. I, I, I really love that magazine. Yeah. A lot of comic book artists drawing their covers yeah, too. Yeah. 
Yeah, specifically like guys who were like anime inspired or tried to be like, you know, Japanese style because a lot of what they were doing in that magazine was you know, like a Japanese influence. Yeah, they had a freaking um, Symphony of the Night cover. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. That, I, I gotta respect that. Yeah, they did evangelize some, some good games in there. Yeah. Uh, brought them to people's attention more than the I other guys. I believe that GamePro also had a Symphony of the Night cover, sir. So really, okay. What I, are you going to do about that? I'm going to say I like PSM more. I'm sorry. <laughs> Still, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I um, PSM launched around the time that I was starting to make regular money and could afford to buy all the video games I wanted and uh, all the publications that I wanted to read. I could afford to actually pay instead of reading at the at the bookstore. Um, so I, you know, I, I kind of just bought PSM for the information, but I, it never really clicked with me the way that Ultra Game Players did. And I always actually preferred uh, official PlayStation magazine, even though it was a little more dry. Um, I felt like yeah. it had more interesting information. And of course, I loved the uh, the game discs, the demo discs. Nice yes. stuff. Of course. I think some of it was they had their own mascot character, which reminded me a lot of Nestor. And he would, oh, he would yeah. pop up all the time, so it could have been just, like, me recalling Nintendo Power made yeah. it better. and uh, here's exactly what I mean by Japanese influence and just trying to be uh, otaku about it. Uh, that yeah. character's name was Chibi-chan. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Banzai Chibi-chan. Yeah. As a matter of fact. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, like, that always kind of... The, the original art in the magazine kind of struck me as sort of, like, um, try-hard Adam Warren. And, if not uh, Adam Warren. Really... <laughs> yeah. They would well, get... yeah, they would they would get Adam Warren to do covers, but like the interior art was usually mm-hmm. like, we really like Adam Warren and we want to draw like him, but yeah. we can't quite get there. They got some of the best envelope art for some reason. I just remember how professionally done. I mean, at least to me at the time, their envelope art was. It wasn't just like Mario sloppily scrawled onto a, a <laughs> envelope with a pencil drawn from clip art. It was just yeah. like really great compositions. That probably had to do with like their whole aesthetic, because like they probably brought in, they probably attracted more. Uh, artistic people in that sense. Yeah, yeah, they made a bigger deal out of it. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that was the Imagine Future stuff, and they made uh, yeah a lot of stuff. Still are, of course. Um, but now let's just step ahead into like the Ziff Davis era, and there's a uh, whole piles and piles to, to talk about here. Not just because we were all a part of it at some point. Well, let's talk about their secret Nazi connections, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> the truth comes out today. No, I, I made uh, that. I up. thought they were Freemasons. Yeah, I mean. Two Jewish guys? I know really? Zip was Nazi a Zionist. <laughs> based on, I'm serious. I, really, I looked it up. I'm like, who are these people? Wow. Okay. Well, that's a great tack to start out on. Right. A, just go <laughs> now, so like uh, in the in the mid '90s, I mean, Zip Davis, known at the time for like PC Magazine and all those other very uh, computer focused uh, magazines, went ahead and bought out basically Sendai's catalog, and so now they were the the new owners of EGM, and they would. Transform that magazine a bit and redesign that and make it a bit more uh, uh, mainstream-ish, commercially viable. I don't know really what ma- words to use and that would fit for that, but it was not. I quite hired as... a lot of British people, basically. <laughs> okay, right. they were like that's, really that's a secret to running a yeah. good publication. Get British people to do there. It. You go. They were yeah, like apparently. a New York publishing house, though, right? For the mm-hmm. most part. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so e- EGM got, uh, got a little better in terms of uh, overall quality. And uh, after that, they would go on to produce the official PlayStation magazine, official U.S. PlayStation magazine, or OPM at the time. And then, um, like everybody else at the time, again, more sort of console-specific magazines. Uh, yeah, they had stuff like DCM, a Dreamcast magazine, which was the competition for Imagine Such Features' official Dreamcast magazine, and uh, so on and so forth. But they also uh, turned EGM2 uh, into Expert Gamer, which uh, was more close to the original point of EGM2, more strategy-focused stuff to it. 
just being like a, like a, uh, again, sort of a competition to tips and tricks, which is again, more code and strategy focused stuff. And then that would later become game now, again, more of a, uh, a wider reaching coverage sort of game magazine, but I believe more focused towards younger readers, yeah. you know, preteens and below that sort of thing. Sonic and Mega Man. Yeah. But, you know, I remember the, uh, that whole Ziff Davis era of, of EGM and in particular being, uh, fondly. Mm-hmm. I think they did a good job. And, uh, like, like you said, uh, getting, getting British people to help out and <laughs> take over the reins apparently helped quite a bit. And, you know, people like John Davison, who would go on to be the ESC for that magazine, uh, you know, really sort of steered the ship in the right way. And, you know, with, I guess, the backing of Ziff Davis really took it into a new level and sort of brought its profile up quite a bit. And I think that uh, led led people like us, you know, being inspired by it and wanting to sort of work for them. And you know. definitely, yeah, yeah. Around that time, I, the the redesign that EGM underwent, you know, around like 1997 or so, um, it it really started to push away from just like here's an explosion of screenshots and little 20 word box outs about each screenshot to much more feature linked articles. Uh, I remember when it kind of started to undergo that change, and that's the point at which I stopped skimming it at newsstands and actually started buying it. Um, like it was, it was actually a pretty good balance between all the different magazines or whatever we've, we've talked about. Like it had more of the sort of restrained design sensibilities of, of uh, next generation, but at the same time, they weren't afraid to inject some personality into it. And it never went, went quite to the same degree as, you know, UGP or PSM, but they still managed to, you know, like, speak with their own voices and write their own opinions. And, you know, sometimes that would be enough to kind of tick people off. For instance, when Greg Seward had the audacity to give Chrono Cross a 9.5 instead of a 10 like everyone else, people still remember that. <laughs> uh, like, that's yeah. the kind of thing people hold on to. Yeah. Um, so they really, <laughs> like EGM of that era, really struck a good balance of, of kind of being personable and unique, but at the same time um, sort of escalating the discourse a bit from where it had been. Yeah, they made some uh, edgy choices too. At least from my perspective, in the late '90s, they did a hundred best games feature. I think it might have been for their hundredth issue or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was around that time, but it was like '97, '98. And game number one was Tetris, and like two through ten were like made at least ten years prior to the magazine coming out. So I was like, I, I, thought, I, I thought that was when they did. Um, maybe that was a later one when they uh, put Super Metroid at number one. That could have been a later I guess that one. Would have but been, I, I think that was maybe like the 150th issue, well, and I yeah. think that was Mark I also Donald's remember doing. Next Gen did the same sort of thing and also put Tetris at number one. Oh, so. was that before or after? I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Super, Super Metroid was in the top three, but it wasn't just like the games from the last five years. It was like they had a real understanding of, you know, history, which I appreciated mm-hmm. as someone yeah. who got into games young. Right. <laughs> it's not like number one's The Last of Us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the best game ever. Yeah, of course. Let's just yeah. give up now. Titan yeah. falls out next week, guys. Best game ever. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. They kept they kept a good perspective on things for sure. Well, Matt, any commentary on, on that sort of era? Yeah, I, I was kind of when I got started working. Um, but no, I don't know. I, I just kept thinking, and this is a total tangent. Go ahead. So <laughs> I should save it. But um, do you remember Ultimate Gamer magazine? Yes, it was like I, a, three or four issues. It was it was from LFP. Right. It was a spinoff of video games. It was supposed to be like the more mature one, uh-huh. but it wasn't mature at all. Um, and well, here was the maturity. They put some hot ladies in it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the thing Jeremy was talking about, uh, you know, previous issues of EGM having, you know, blurb kind of articles and ultimate gamer, if I remember correctly, their first issue had like two page review spreads with not a single word written. It was just the game title, maybe a deck and yeah. then like photos and then a score. 
Yeah. So basically, Ooh, the whole point yeah. of it was literally just the score. Yeah. Um, wow. Well, which was fascinating to me, and, and I think as like that was maybe the first issue, and then like maybe they added like a paragraph in the next <laughs> issue or something like that. Yeah. Also, the people who did that magazine did a fanzine at the same time called Game Head, which was like my favorite thing ever for hmm. two or three issues. But wow. um, anyway, this is totally off topic. So no, it's fine. I think actually that goes back to a point I was going to bring up is that you know we did have along with Next Generation these sorts of. Uh, Mature focused video game magazines, uh, like Ultimate Gamer, whether they, whether they worked out or not, yeah. I mean, there was this sort of little pocket of magazines that were trying to appeal to an older audience, uh, like that, and, uh, Intelligent Gamer, which, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much wears its concept right yeah. on the front there. Um, I did not actually look at that magazine, uh, at all. I don't oh. really, never picked it up. Did you, Matt? Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was only around for a couple issues until it turned into some, it has some other title. Mm. Uh, oh boy. IG's something else. I oh, can't sure. remember. Yeah. Um, I think our friend John Rick already worked on that. Yeah, I believe that was his, his big break, I guess. Uh, do you, well, it started from a website, right? And then it turned into a magazine, if I'm oh, correct? I don't know. I think I that's what it was. was maybe maybe that was the second incarnation, like it fused with those. I'm, I should mm, look yeah. it up. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was cool. It was like another version of Next Gen, but with like a little bit different flavor, a mm-hmm. little bit more uh, color put into layouts and stuff like yeah. that. All right. Um, anyway, well, like I said, I mean, the Ziff Davis stuff was a big deal, and it's probably, again, one of those things that would probably be a whole fusion? episode. And, you know. Told you Gamers Fusion. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> thanks, thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> again, a whole new episode, I and, mean, you know, I mean, we've, we've, we've been part of the Ziff Davis, uh, whole conglomerate for a bit, and we've done podcasts, and so we've had a lot of insight from people already for yeah. years and years, but, as far as, you know, when we were still youngins and looking at this stuff from the outside, I mean, yeah, it was important. And it's glad that EGM sort of evolved and sort of, sort of kept evolving and sort of keeping that same high bar quality. Um, yeah, I take, I take perverse pride in getting at least one article into the magazine before it died. Yeah. I'm on the last page of the last Ziff Davis issue, <laughs> wow. so I killed it. <laughs> okay. God, you guys are so morbid sometimes. <laughs> Jeez. I killed this. I killed Mega Man. Whatever. Can we do one uh, sidebar, Ray, before we move on? I know Please, we're on, side- uh, um, I want to talk about the weird uh, – we're going to put a CD-ROM in with this magazine for no reason era. <laughs> yeah. I mean with PC Gamer, it made sense and you got the same adventure game every every month with Coconut Monkey. Yes. You had to like fix <laughs> – the, you had to fix the elevator to get to the, to get to the floor with the demo selection. But you could just open the yeah. CD-ROM through Explorer and pull out the demo files that way. Yeah. But I remember even like – even like ultra game players would pack in a demo like uh, here are some videos I guess like they're mm-hmm. quick time and terrible quality yeah. but at the time it would probably take like half an hour to download them so yeah they imagine imagine magazines were big on that that's also like next generation distributed Christmas nights yep that's I think, how I got yeah, it yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah you can only get that <laughs> through getting next generation for a while yeah so yeah the whole big disc thing was uh, kind of a big boon I mean before that there were floppy disc demo discs and in magazines and things but I'm because CDs were. Uh, ostensibly so much cheaper to produce and just throw things on there. Yeah, it became a big thing for a lot of different magazines. Yeah, I remember in the earliest days, I would buy magazines that were just like computer magazines I didn't really have yeah. much interest in just yeah. because I was so fascinated by watching a video play off a disc. Like, just that concept. <laughs> like, I didn't care if it was like a movie trailer I or what. I need something like, to there test was out a this year multimedia there, Yeah, where like any multimedia thing was just fascinating. And yeah. there were there were CD uh, – so this is not gaming related, but there were CD-ROM magazines like Blender mm-hmm. uh, that yeah. were just – you would buy the CD, like, welcome to the 90s. You don't read magazines. You, you CD-ROM them. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Imagine that magazine. Yeah, that is the most 90s thing. Ah, oh, Blender. Today would be an app with the vowels removed. Oh, my Lord. Yes, you're right. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, I remember like, uh, I mean, again, we have not talked about much about the PC game magazines and I apologize for that, but I do remember, you know, getting PC gamer a lot just because of the, the demo discs. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people did the same thing. They would get things just for the disc, but also perhaps later enjoy the editorial content. That was a big magazine yeah, too. Sort of the gamer version of reading Playboy for the articles, I guess, <laughs> or not. Um, but yeah, I, I was in like a lot of other demo discs for, you know, uh, OPM as well. It's like that introduced me to a lot of great games that I would later, you know, get and, and love for the, for a long time. I, I feel like with the console games, there were just fewer of them out. So a demo disc would have like three or four, but PC yeah. gamers demo disc would have like 20 yeah. games or like yeah. a dozen games. Like some, some would never, I mean, some wouldn't be on your shelf. They'd be just like these obscure, you know, things coming out. And they'd repeat them from previous issues. They, yeah, too. they would. Yeah. Just because like you might only get one disc. We're going to so. fill the space. So yeah, yeah that was yeah. a fun time just trying uh, like just every PC game that was coming out, mm-hmm. like some weird haunted mini golf game. Yes, exactly. Whatever the hell that was. Yeah, or some violent sort of Mortal Kombat knockoff that two guys made and it's like on Windows 95. Yeah. <laughs> I would later find it at like Barnes & Noble. That would be the only place. Yeah. Crazy. And I think so they still make coconut monkey jokes in <laughs> PC Gamer the magazine. I'm, sh- I'm sure it, they do. In case you don't know, he was sort of your uh, host through the demo disc mm-hmm. and there were little jokes about him all throughout. This little uh, nesting doll looking thing. Yeah. Talk to you in it's sort of a Jamaican accent or something. Like that. It's the kind of it's, thing you would find in like a ABC store in Hawaii or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. I thought it was an Indian accent, but I could be wrong. Yeah, let's not do it here. I was thinking tropical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, on the topic of like CD-ROMs and super '90s stuff, like as we leave the '90s and things like the Dreamcast come in, like there was this new sort of wave of magazines coming that tried to be like so super hip. And it wasn't just like things like Blender, but also game focused stuff like Insight, which I believe was started by a German uh, publishing company, uh, originally in Europe, and then they sort of made an American version. And that was just one of those things where it's like, oh man, we're so hip and cool. This technology is so awesome. And now we're putting hot chicks all over the pages and then the cover and stuff. Like, here's a celebrity on the cover that would have nothing to do with this game otherwise. Yeah. But hey, you can also read an interview with her. And it's just, uh, that, yeah, that what does Mina Suvari think about Mario 64? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, I think Insight did not last long. I think just a single-digit number of issues. Hmm. Uh, there were two magazines, though, right? It was like a PC and console. Yes, yes, that's right. PC version and console version. Um, so that's yeah. not related to PC XL? No. No, PC Accelerator was an Imagine magazine. Okay. Uh, headed by uh, Mike, Mike uh, Salmon, yep. who was on Ultra Game Players. And that was mm. just, yeah, that was the uh, the rough and tumble, super broy <laughs> PC game magazine. It was my first boss. That's weird. And ah, this is not meant to disparage anyone, but when no, I started no. working under the IGN umbrella, I noticed they had like soft, soft core cheesecake galleries as part of their content. It was like, it was called Babology. Uh-huh. So I guess that eventually didn't go away. It's gone away now, but no, it was it was around. Yeah. yeah. It did stick around. I mean, <laughs> for better or worse, like, I guess. Here are uh, some boobs yeah. and here's a review. Yeah. Multiple tabs, people. Even even at one up we had arguments about whether or not we should have, you know, booth babe galleries because right. they did really good traffic for us, but also they were kind of gross. And uh it was it was a it was an ongoing battle. Yeah. And people wonder why there's so many problems with gamer culture nowadays. <laughs> uh sorry, not to play, play not to lay blame on anyone in any certain point in time or anything, but yeah, it's just 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 kind of silliness.
speaking of one up, let's let's move ahead. Let's move our discussion into the internet era, and this is something I wanted to talk about. Daniel Turner did not actually uh, specifically ask us to talk about the internet, but I thought since we are talking about game media and stuff, it, it's, it is a good sort of part of history to talk about, and something that we're all pretty much involved in, and thing something that you know uh, without it we wouldn't be here today. So I mean, slowly but surely, you had the big media. Uh, publishers who were making all these magazines, they were moving all their properties onto the onto the internet, specifically the World Wide Web. And uh, the, the advantages of the web were pretty much obvious. I mean, you could get instantaneous news and things, uh, and you could get ex- exclusive content, like uh, specifically video, or maybe like certain staff uh, columns or blogs, and or maybe other uh, sort of late-breaking impressions on games, you know, import stuff, for example. And you had a much greater sort of focus on community stuff because you could set up a forum, you could set up these things and it wouldn't just be a, a monthly letter section anymore. You could have people in a chat room on a forum interacting with each other, not necessarily directly to the staff. And so even the spirit of the, of, of, of zines at the time, you know, game zines, which were originally just made by, you know, one or two people in, in Hoboken or whatever. I mean, <laughs> the spirit of that would come into the internet when, when, when you had like the fan sites, that were started by, you know, again, one or two people. And you'd have things like not just GeoCities pages, but larger scale things like the unofficial Squaresoft homepage from Andrew Vessel or Dave Z's uh, Saturn page, just like these <laughs> really sort of platform-focused sites from just fans, you know, and people who may later on go on to be uh, on the uh, mainstream editorial. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, that was also just a great part of the Internet for game coverage. Um but of course, you know, when the internet finally started to become a thing around 94, 95, you would have more, uh, game companies themselves jump onto the bandwagon. And you, I think Nintendo was really one of the first to do it. And they got a big space on AOL called, uh, Nintendo Power Source. And this was just like this, again, just ostensibly an offshoot of the magazine, Nintendo Power, but you would have, a lot of uh, special content. You would, they had like a special online team and they would have weekly chats with you and everything. And like everybody else was doing at the time, you'd have these celebrity chats, <laughs> you know, going on. I remember one with right. Alexei Pachinov talking about Tetris stuff. Does AOL still have uh, proprietary keyword content? Oh um, God, I do. Because it's so fun. I mean, we, we laugh at, we laugh <laughs> now, but I mean, this could be, this could be our Twitter handle in five years, but there, there were these things called AOL keywords uh-huh. where, <laughs> If you, if you look at mm-hmm. actually, I was doing some shopping for DVDs recently, just going through a bin, and some of the backs of them will be like, visit us at AOL keyword, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, like, it would just be the proprietary content for AOL because there was once a split between AOL content and web content. Yeah. And you yeah. could pay for one or both if you wanted to, but yeah, it was so, so weird. God, yeah. AOL keywords. So, yeah, at first it was that sort of dichotomy between actual websites and things that you had on the online services like CompuServe and AOL, just sort of these little spaces that you could only get if you were a subscriber. Hmm. Yeah. I, 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 when I first had AOL, like, I didn't even have internet access, like, web access as part of it. Oh. So <laughs> I, I, I couldn't remember if that was, like, the way it was set up or if it was just the way we had ordered it. Well, that is now the but, future of the internet, so yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. let's get ready. Uh, so yeah, Nintendo was sort of on top of it in that way, and uh, that was cool. They also had uh, Camp Hyrule, which was their online summer camp, uh, which would later go off of AOL into its own website. But that was just like this place where you could uh, all gather around, you'd be assigned to a cabin and have a bunk and stuff. And like the big focus of it, I th- for most people, was just like this sort of like uh, fan fiction collective. Like you could make these uh, role playing blogs. Hmm. Be your own characters and things, and it was just—it was odd to me. I could not really get into it at that point, but yeah, there was you, a lot of text-based role-playing in those AOL message board areas mm-hmm. at that time. 
Yeah, and here was the Nintendo-focused one, where you could uh, live out all your furry dreams, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing happened a lot, and that was also a place for exclusive chats and whatnot, other events that you could do all, you know, for pretty much the whole summer. And I think uh, maybe I was too old for it at the time, but I'm sure some people who were a bit younger at the time probably enjoyed it more than I did as well. Uh, AOL also had a spot called Antagonist, uh, sort of their own little uh, in-house gaming editorial thing. Um, again, sort of a nice little community collective, had exclusive reviews and previews, all that sort of stuff. But again, centralized on AOL, I think for a time, maybe they did have another website, I can't remember. But that was also just another one of those uh, fondly remembered places. As far as websites, there was Nuke, which was, uh, I believe, started uh, first by Sendai, uh, or whoever was owning them at the time. And that was like basically the precursor to GameSpot, because Ziff Davis would start GameSpot, which was the hub for EGM at the time and all that stuff. But Nuke was the uh, beginning of that, and that was where you could look at stuff for EGM, get exclusive content for that, and their other magazines, mm. like Hero Illustrated, their comic and magazine and again just another place where you could interact uh, with the staff or the other fans and things and again this was the era of uh, supposedly big web portals where you would go to these places and make them your homepage and hang out there for the rest of your life and <laughs> didn't always exactly work out um, but again of course that led to GameSpot after a little bit and I mean People think of GameSpot as one of the earliest uh, websites now. It was called VideoGames.com. And, uh, Better name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of started with Nuke there. There were other little sites around that time like Happy Puppy. Oh, yeah. Listen, I implore everyone to look at the history of this site. It yeah. is the most tragic comic disaster <laughs> web bubble era story you'll ever read. Can you give us the gist? Well, I mean, uh, this – I forget the name of the people who ran it. I believe they were husband and wife, right? Is that correct? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, basically they were paid a lot of money and it was all frittered away on, like, anime garbage. So this, What do you mean exactly? Um, of, like buying anime or um, – Yeah, like statuettes. I mean okay. the story is online if you want to dig okay. for it. But sure, sure. this is this is the story of, like, the dot-com dot era gone, gone sour. Yeah. Just like we got, a, we got a million dollars. We don't know how to spend a million dollars, but god damn it, we'll do it. I think it was more than a million. It had to be some crazy sum. But yeah. Look up the story. I'm sure it's I'm sure yeah. it's recorded. I mean, I was not a fan of Happy Puppy, but I know people went there quite a bit. It was one of those like high ranking game websites at the time, and yeah. people would go there for all sorts of stuff. But uh, it lasted, I think, until 2005 or something like that. Of course, it changed hands a billion million times. And, yeah, I forget who bought it exactly, but yeah. it was a hot property. Yeah, <laughs> at the time, <laughs> uh, GameFan had a website. Huh? Yeah, Matt, you yes, ever it did. GameFan.com. Yeah, Sam Kennedy did a lot of the early stuff yeah. on that site. Yes, yes, he did. Um, that was that was a fascinating site because that was one of those like in the early days. Game websites didn't have tons of updates, but there was a period where yeah. GameFan, they would show you like how many like news stories they were doing a day, and it was like, I don't know, 20 or 30, mm. which at the time was like, wow, how could anyone produce yeah. this much no. stuff? And I think that was kind of what was notable about it to me. Yeah, I remember them sort of being big on the sort of uh, as it happens sort of thing, especially when they get a new import game in, they'd post videos of it as mm -hmm. soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so it was, it was an extension of the magazine in that, in that sense. And of course, uh, Sam Kennedy, our old boss, old uh, editor of oneup.com, he started there as well. And I think they did have a largely different staff from the magazine, just so they had this web team covering all sorts of the same things. Uh, and then there was n64.com and PSX Power and all the other sites sort of started by Imagine which it later became Snowball, and then those all sort of came to be known as IGN. And But uh, I think we can sort of see one of the very first seeds of IGN was this N64 site, mm -hmm. and uh, 
um, they would post all sorts of news and stuff as well. They would have like a uh, first looks at things. And as well as that, you know, PSX Power, which was their PlayStation site and other things that I'm sort of forgetting. I'm sure they had a Sega one that I totally blanking out on. But, um, yeah, eventually after a few years, they again just sort of changed hands and changed again, then became IGN and brought it all under one umbrella. I mean, IGN was sort of, it was created around there. I mean, these sites did exist alongside IGN, if I remember correctly. Well, IGN's original name was Imagine Games Network. Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, so yes, it was kind of them all coming together. And yeah, like I think like Pear, didn't he want run N64 in the early days? And he runs like all of IGN now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's, it's all kind of the same yeah, family. That again fostered a lot of the people who, you know, became famous over the personas and now are still around, probably still at IGN. Like you said, Pear is and uh, other people who grow. Yeah. Jay Bohr from, uh, <laughs> PlayStation Power, PSX Power runs Konami's global PR now. Oh. Uh, Jazz Rignall who helped launch the IGN sites as my boss at the mm-hmm. moment. Well, Jazz has his own great history from the UK. Yeah, as well. yeah. we could do a Retronauts on Jazz. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so alongside with that, yeah, I would listen to that, parallel to that sort of thing was Gamers.com, which, uh, again, was sort of the beginning of 1UP, but not really because it was started by a different company at first. And uh, I thought maybe someone could give me a more general I overview there. of gamers.com. Uh, Someone like Matt. Um, but me. but not really. Like I was I was freelance. Um, okay. Well, contract, I guess. Um, yeah, it was uh, Dennis Fong who yep. got famous Thresh. for uh, having a Ferrari in the lobby. Um, <laughs> and they did. So they had a Ferrari in the lobby. Um, I think he's famous for hitting... Um, well, well, he did a bunch of... Notable stuff. Ferrari owner. Yeah. He was an esports guy, right? Good at Quake, Quake I believe. Right. Quake, yeah, he won some tournament that yes. so Carmack like, gave him his Ferrari and then he didn't really have anywhere to put it. So when Gamers.com launched, he that was yeah. in the lobby. Um, it was it was garage. very much a internet startup money kind uh-huh. of thing. They hired a bunch of people. Like like Shu worked there. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Che was there. Shane. Um, yeah, they they poached a bunch of people from Zip Davis actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember hearing about uh, they specifically bought apartments for people. So maybe like I, I heard the money was pretty yeah. good. I, I don't mm. know specifics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so they all went over there. They had this office out in Richmond, and it. It was it was so like dot com like I ever I only ever went there one time because because yeah. basically I was brought in to do like I was one of four people working on arcade game coverage because mm-hmm. of some fan site stuff I had done um, so I, I was a tiny tiny part of it um, but I went to the office one time and they had like a projector showing like a movie on the wall and they had, like catered dinner for everyone it just God, felt like total dot sure. com kind of just situation. imagining all the jobs so many jobs yeah yeah God. and I think if I remember correctly the pitch was this is like yeah we're gonna do a big website. But now, you know, the quality is going to come up to the level of print or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it would be a a more well-written website than you'd seen out there. Um, It, you know, it didn't last terribly long. Um, They had had some really good stuff. It was basically the... uh, the genesis of like an online cover story concept, mm, which mm-hmm. everyone is doing in different formations now, kind of came from them. They did like a one a week, one really big feature a week, and they had a, a good string of those for a little while, where a whole bunch of people pitched in on them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was both an editorial website and a big database, and tried to do a lot of things. And, yeah, I think that like the sad thing is, um, how much of this content is actually archived online? I feel like that's the like oh. game. I mean, one up is still up, you know. Knock on wood well, as, as we record this, but if you want to try the Wayback Machine, yeah, yeah, you, you can look it up, but it wouldn't be on gamers.com itself. That's only so reliable, though. Like, I don't know where to find this content. Yeah, um, yeah. It, yeah it may be lost. I don't know. Yeah, it's just frustrating, is all. 
one of the one of the things that really appealed to me about gamers.com from a uh, you know from a user perspective back when it first launched was that it was really the first gaming website to try to create some kind of gaming community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, you know, it didn't go to the full length, you know, of blogs and everything. That was more kind of what one up introduced. But, you know, it had forums. And in addition to those, it also um, was the first place I can remember seeing a, uh, a place to create reader reviews of games. Mm-hmm. You know, they had this massive database of video games, and the staff didn't have time to actually go in and create reviews for, you know, every goddamn NES or Sega Master System game. So they left, you know, this opportunity open for fans of those games to come in and kind of create their own coverage. It was, you know, pre-Wikipedia, before, you know, that that, that more common style, you know, of uh, the, the current style of, of uh, community-sourced coverage. But, um, yeah, I, I thought that was really innovative, and it really, really appealed to me. Like, you know, I had my own stupid gaming website that no one read at the time. This was like 1998, 99. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thought of, you know, going to this other website that had much more traffic and much bigger audience and posting stuff that people could read and my name was attached, like, that was really cool to me. So, um, you know, when the when the site first launched, I was really kind of big into uh, posting reader reviews and probably wrote like a dozen or so uh, favorite games at the time. And that never really went anywhere. And eventually I was just like, ah, eh, the hell with it. I'll just make my own website. I might as well, you know, keep my own content and use it for my own purposes. But, mm-hmm. uh, th- to me, that was, uh, that was kind of inspiring and, and kind of, kind of, kind of, I guess, kicked me in the butt to, uh, to be really in favor of gaming websites or just any websites that have uh, a strong community hook and, and, aren't just like a one-way conversation. The highlight of my uh, gamers.com experience was uh, I, I, got, I had known this guy from like doing some purchases and various like import things, and he found he got a Wonder Swan before it came out. <laughs> so he sold me like a Wonder Swan like three months before it came out, and we like did a bunch of coverage of it, and I still have no idea if like that was totally illegal how he got <laughs> it or how that happened, but um, that was interesting. <laughs> wow. I guess it's yeah. the only time technically that I've like paid for something that we've used for coverage. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. But gamers.com was bought by Zip Davis? Sort of. Yeah. Sort of? I mean, like, yes, but the carcass. The carcass, Not yes. the site, you know, yes. like like the leftovers, and then so, Dave Smith took that over. And- yeah. So the carcass, and I, I do mean this in a technological sense, uh, did f- form 1UP. Like yeah. the very first, very, 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 very first version of 1UP. Mm. The blue uh, version. Yes, the blue version of 1UP, and... Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> we go from uh, Matt entering the picture to now Jeremy entering the picture to where, you know, this is where 1UP was started, you know, basically. So, I mean, you've talked about this before in many different ways, Jeremy, but, you know, the overview. Um, I think they came to Sam Kennedy and were like, hey, Sam Kennedy, you wunderkind, you must, uh, you, you understand the internet thing because of GameFan.com. Yeah. So let's take you off OPM where you're doing the Clish McLavin column and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, you, you make this website for us, and we're going to give you pretty much no resources. So hire some people and uh, go have fun sitting on the, that separate floor by yourself. Don't expect any support from the magazines. And that's what happened. And uh, a few months into that process, they hired me. Actually, Matt came on, what, a couple of days before me? I don't remember or a exactly. couple of months. Um, uh, I, I remember, I mean, editorially it was a significant amount, but I don't remember as far as like when we actually showed up in the office. Darn. Because yeah, cause you were I, um, in art at the beginning. Right, yeah. Like, I, I have no insight into the actual 
creative process behind the site because I came in before launch, but after the idea had been sewed. Mm-hmm. And um, like, yeah, I was in the art department. I was like the junior art guy. So they didn't tell me anything. I just kind of <laughs> yeah. blundered into editorial after a few months. Yeah. So that's not a very exciting story. I'm sorry. I'm just no, not the one to tell um, it. I, I uh, before uh, we left one of old offices, the last office, I, I, I grabbed a bunch of. Uh, I mean, they're just they're just leaving things in the building to rot, I guess. So I grabbed a bunch of these stickers, and my favorite sticker that I have is one for Gazerk. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, <laughs> the video game search engine. Uh huh. Of course. <laughs> Vertical search. It's the future. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I remember, you know, going to one up at first, and it was it was built on the gamers.com database, so a lot of it looked and felt the same way as was it. Gamers did. I don't know about that because they actually they poached Ivan Sulich from IGN specifically so that he could help them build out a video game database. So I think actually Ivan just stole uh, IGN's database and brought it over. <laughs> well, like <laughs> because as far as like were, a list there were, of there was all kinds of stuff on the, in the database. Now. If you if you look in the the one up database. Um, there's some really weird stuff in there that's like not a video game, like ROM hacks of Final Fantasy V and stuff like that, that was just kind of legacy in the system already. And I, I don't know what the specifics are there. I'm just kind of speculating, but I think there was a little bit of skullduggery going on. Um, don't quote me on that. But... Yeah, I mean, they obviously imported some lists from somewhere. I don't remember where exactly um but i don't think it was too much based on gamers comics most of the stuff that like dave smith was doing in between when gamers.com was like a real site and when one came along was uh was just like news posts and stuff it wasn't really database focused they they did import the forums from gamers.com yeah which is why oneup.com's forums were full of people who didn't like oneup.com like the forums were mostly occupied through the through the entire life of oneup.com yeah like the <laughs> forums were dominated by people who completely hated oneup because they went to gamers.com and then that, that forum went over there and they were just like, screw these guys. I hate them. I want gamers.com. And that never went away. There was always like this, this, uh, careers sort of it. like deep seated yeah. hatred of the website from the very beginning. I it's mean, very strange, yeah, but, I, but there was enough traffic and enough, uh, page views generated from the forums that they would never just dump them and start over. I worked at one up about a decade after gamers.com shut down and I would never go into the forums because they were just like, they did not a decade like us. later, people yeah. still like they were still like those gamers.com guys who really hated one up. It's, it's like, so weird. Thresh left too. He's not coming back. Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to see his Ferrari again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, that's, that's one up in gamers.com. Uh, like I said, there's a big, big list of websites that, uh, we all had some sort of attachment to. Inside and outside of this room, but I mean, there was also uh, the Gaming Intelligence Agency, which mm. was sort of the next step for Andrew Vessel after the uh, Square.net uh, unofficial Squaresoft homepage. And Jeremy had contributed to them quite a while, and uh, that's also where I got my start. And it was just one of those sort of it became sort of a prestigious, prestigious uh, fan site. Although I guess we didn't really want to call ourselves a fan site, but uh, it had a lot of. A very specific coverage, largely RPGs, but some other things. It was, it was semi-pro. It was yeah. uh, it was the Rebel EOS of video game websites. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I would say arguably the the best Pro-sumer. fan site there, oh, God, there yeah. was for games. I agree, um, especially because like it covered games that I was not personally interested in, but I still went to it. Like that's yeah, that's I think it says something. Yeah, it's a good hallmark for sure. I mean, yeah, what else can we say? Really. <laughs> Another, yeah. another. I mean, this is sort of like game players, but the the letter section mm, was yeah. also notably good. That's right. Yeah. Every yeah, right. day, every day, right? 
And once on the weekends? Every day. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Anywhere from three to six letters per day. And not just like little short terse responses either. Like really, really lengthy ones. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah actually, real discussions. Um, yeah. I don't know exactly how, uh, GIA got started, but basically, um, once the unofficial Squaresoft homepage, um, Andrew Vestal kind of stepped away from that and gave it or sold it to another guy and that became RP Gamer. Um, he kind of vanished from the picture for a little while and then came back and teamed up with some friends. I think some guys who worked at RP Gamer, mm-hmm. um, they grabbed me from, I just posted on the forums occasionally or actually quite a bit on, on RP Gamer and a couple of the forums. They were like, Hey, we like your, your artwork. So could you do the design for the site for us? So that crappy manila envelope style, uh, the, 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 the terrible layout was so dated. You like, mean that's the iconic layout? The iconic. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> it is iconic. I, I did. Cre- I did create the the seal, the in Lutus Delictato seal with the generic game controller that we redesigned and redesigned so it didn't look like any one controller. It was kind right. of all the controllers. Mm-hmm. I made that and I made up uh, the mascots Larissa and Calvin, which was fun. But mm-hmm. um, basically, I decided after helping to do the design for the page that. I really just kind of wanted to do my own thing and didn't want to have to sit on IRC every night after work because I was working at the time. Mm. Like I had a job, yeah. a real job, and I didn't want to come home from work and sit on IRC and be told what to do. So I was just like, <laughs> thanks, guys. This was fun. I'm going to go do my own website. And, you know, I still contributed to GIA, and there was, like, feedback back and forth between my little site and their site, and it was a good partnership, and I, you know, stepped in and did the art section for a while. But mm. it was just fun. Like, it was a... yeah. Even though I said it, was, it would have been work for me, like it's a different kind of work. It's not. It wasn't a slog. There was not really any sense of like we're going to get rich off of this or even make any money off of this. It was just people who really wanted the games that they liked to be covered, and they managed to parlay that into a much more um, professional caliber kind of website that people really, really gravitated toward. Um, I don't know why that one website, you know did so much better than uh than so many other fan sites but yeah uh, there was just a good chemistry and a good mix of people and content and and subjects and you know they they really kind of focused on a certain style of game and really kept it to that so i think that helped too mm-hmm. yeah i would say i mean it was also organized as best that it could be i mean among the staff i mean everything sort of happened on irc and you know th- things were kept pretty cohesive i mean there were ups and downs for sure but yeah i mean it's kind of interesting to see. I do remember talking uh, when when the 9-11 terrorist attacks happened. I was reading the Gaming Intelligence Agency forums. Mm. And people were posting about it there. I just remember yeah. that like very vividly. Yeah. So I was like one of the last four people to be hired on to the GI before it shut down in uh, 02. And that was like October of 2001. So yeah. Me and Alex Fraioli, Aaron Malos, and uh, a gentleman named Nathan. I forget his last name, but he didn't last long, unfortunately. But yeah. And then it, it shut down on April Fool's Day. Yes. The worst day to do anything on the internet. Well, we're the dicks. The best day. Yeah. We're dicks. No, I mean, we done, I mean, that side had done so well with other April Fool's gags. It's like, well, let's, let's just do the ultimate troll. I, I found it, I found it to be just so strange that it, it would, I, I didn't see any signs of it going away. You know, mm-hmm. it was like yeah. super heartbreaking because just one day it was like, oh, we're, we're not around anymore. And, mm-hmm. uh, I was just no way to monetize it. I just don't understand. I mean, uh, I, I felt like it could have, it could have been a thing maybe with ads or something like that. Ish, I guess. So I mean, I think maybe also just, um, you know, the people, at the top of the time, just didn't really... They had other things going on. Hmm. Couldn't really uh, maintain it. 
So, Maybe not like, as much um, enthusiasm for the PS2, Xbox era. I don't know about that, but I mean, people like uh, Nick Maragos were still there, and the, he had already gone on to Gamers.com and mm-hmm. would be at One Up yeah. later, and then people moved on, move up, things happen like that. But yeah, that was a GIA. That was, you know, once again something we can all relate to a bit. And yeah, that's just like that's it's just a sampling of all that crazy stuff that was on the internet during the nineties and uh, up until the early two thousands. Anybody else have anything to talk about before we wind down a bit? Because we talked about a lot, I know. But hmm. Matt, any last comments? Anything you want us to remember? Crunk games. Oh God! Yeah. Oh my <laughs> Lord! Well, thanks for joining us on the show, everybody. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Also, uh, didn't Gaming Intelligence Agency split off into game forms and games are fun and those are both no. gone now or how did that work? Games are fun was different. Okay. I, I knew like, that they were like splinter groups or Yeah, some of us who still wanted to do stuff after the GIA closed started game forms, but that didn't work out because uh, we did not have a very nice uh, good team going on uh, there. So <laughs> that didn't work out either. I remember uh, games then, are fun. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, that was just like a concurrent sort of thing. It's so like people from the same sort of IRC circle starting yeah. a size site like that as well. I remember they had a really good – before Let's Plays, they had a Dragon Warrior 4 like Let's Play. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And it was very – it was pretty funny, but the site shut down before they finished it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, then after Game Forms, uh, me and Alex Fraley started our own site called Crunk Games to do pretty much the exact same thing. I pretty much almost ripped off GI's <laughs> basic layout entirely just to cover all the sorts of Japanese games that I was discovering and things, and Alex could write about Dragon Quest and Resident Evil, like he usually does. Uh, said with affection, of course. Best E3 like, photo galleries on the internet. Oh, thank you. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yep, it's still up there. Don't worry. I, I, I've, I've kept it up um, for sure. We're now you know past 10 years old. Yeah, Chromegames.com. <laughs> yes, we have. And uh, Gaming Hell JTC is still around somewhat. They yes, have a Twitter? It's, it's been Rapped. rebooted. Yes. It's pretty much where Andrew Vestal goes to complain about Bioshock Infinite yeah. at this point. <laughs> <laughs> There's some of that. There's some of that. There's some of that. Yeah. A little. Just a little. Yeah. Different, much different sort of approach to things, but, uh, yeah. Still mm. sort of that, uh, intelligence, the more of the intelligent part of it. Mm-hmm. Well, then, if nobody else has anything, let's go ahead and wind down the show because we're running a bit long and it has been a lot of things to talk about. Um, but yes, think oh, we didn't even get into game zines. I know. That I could know. be a pocket. I know, Matt. I wanted to bug you Dodge about your that zine. one. Yeah. Actually, video games and computer entertainment would, re- would review zines. I remember. Yeah, yeah. Why do yeah. you think I did mm-hmm. it? <laughs> did you get in? Did you get in? I got in a few of them. I was okay. In one of the I might have read. tips and tricks, maybe? Yeah. Or maybe video games. I don't know. Well, can you just tell us what the name of it was? <laughs> no, but they made fun of a poem no, I ran your one zine. time. Your zine. Yeah. What was, what was the name of it? Yeah, we, we were all had young a few different once. names. We were all young yeah. once. Uh, it was called Game Over at one point, and it was called Event Gaming at one okay. point. Just ah, yes, Event Gaming. <laughs> Before that was a website, it you was technically one issue of a printed fan. Hey. I'll just start somewhere. Hmm. I have my letter printed in OPM once. <laughs> Plenty to talk about. And thank you once again to Daniel Turner for just suggesting this topic. And, uh, yeah, this has been Retronauts for this week. Uh, please check us out on the internet. Uh, retronauts.com is where you can find our episodes and any other commentary related to that. You can comment on the episodes. We have had some crazy good comments on episodes lately. We well. have, yeah. yeah. I totally appreciate any comments. Uh, it's important to note that you should get them in before four or five days have passed because we close comments to prevent spam. Yeah, not yeah. not to be spiteful just because of spam. Oh, I thought it was to be spiteful. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean... We're spiting the spammers. Yeah, okay. I mean, uh, I'm recording this uh, right after the Parappa and, and Matsuno episodes and people enjoyed those a lot. So yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for all the good words. 
Um, and we're also on Twitter on Retronauts, so you can, you know, get, catch the, uh, the, the, the updates as it happens where you can find the new episodes and, you know, tweet us and things. Uh, if you still want to tweet us pictures of you in our Retronauts shirt, go right ahead. Yeah, I'll <laughs> welcome I that as well. Those. Yeah. Or even you not in our Retronauts shirt. Whoa. Okay. No. Or only in our Retronauts shirt. Hey-o. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's too far. You uh, went the wrong direction. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Uh, we also put the podcast out on uh, SoundCloud. You can, you can also find that on retronauts.com. Embeds there and subscribe to us that way. It's another way to find the show. Uh, sometimes we do streaming on Twitch. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the main things as for, as for us on the internet so far. I've been crunching the numbers and only 1% of our listeners literally have left us reviews. That's still uh, a lot of reviews. Yeah. Okay. But well then, time to get back into bugging people. If you're not in the 1%, <laughs> if you're part of the 99%, yeah. you need to rise up and write yes, a review. It's quite simple. If you I think. I hated the 1%. Um, um that's about this time. In this context, they're, they're the oh, good guys. Wow. Oh. Lots of hugs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's quite simple. If you think uh, we are the best retro game podcast, if not the best video game podcast ever, uh, make it known on iTunes. Uh, we're listed on there, and it's not like you have to subscribe necessarily or have to love iTunes, but, you know, if you have an account on there, go ahead, give us a high high ranking review a nice and a nice written review as well, and it does help some way. Uh, <laughs> but, yes, everybody bugs you. But, you know, that. only if you mean it. Nah, yeah, well... We're not holding a gun to anyone's head. Mm, you don't have to mean it. Yeah. You do have to be nice. <laughs> it's just all our moms. Oh, there's something. It's like you send a birthday card to your like aunt or whatever. Yeah, exactly. It's a sentiment. Uh, so yeah. That's been the show. I do want to say one more thanks and apologies to all our friends who, uh, you know, are, have been involved in all these magazines and sites as well, but, and ha- probably have lots to say about this stuff as well, but, uh, couldn't be on the show. It was a bit tight to get in, uh, sort of, you know, like I said, we had a guest going on, but didn't work out. So I had to sort of, uh, scramble mildly to get this going. But nonetheless, uh, you know, we appreciate all of our, uh, colleagues from the past and present who have also done a lot of this stuff. And, uh, yeah, let's, uh, hopefully we'll move on to move forward. And continue moving upward as we create new forms of game media and hopefully aren't swallowed by uh, wiki sites and people posting, you know, cat pictures and <laughs> upworthy YouTube stuff. is the real threat now, man. Yeah. That too. I didn't want to say it, but yeah. <laughs> Matt Leon, thank you for joining us once again. Thank you. All right. And Bob as well. No problem. And Jeremy. You? Yep. Okay. All right. This has been Retronauts. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next week on Retronauts Pocket. Bye-bye. EGM, Electronic Gaming Monthly. Get cool reviews, secret codes, tips, game maps, and previews like American Sammy's Wanderers from Ease. Thrilling adventure and graphics for play on Super NES. EGM, excellent. This excellent TV offer is only available by calling 800-8-GAMERS. Get four issues of EGM plus one of these guides and this tips book free. Pay by check or pay by credit card now and get a bonus tip sheet free. Call 800-8-GAMERS. That's 800-8-GAMERS.